Greetings, all ladies and metal gents, and welcome to the podcast version of Tales, Tales from Outer from our space. space. In this episode, we'll be doing TFOS 1304 to 1317, and as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 1304, story number one. A second faster, written for writing prompt 80. Raktar had been sent to this planet to help maintain order in the new colony that they'd set up here. He was an experienced Kotovorian general who had earned the respect of his subordinates. Currently, he was staring at a hollow display showing five destroyers, twenty cruisers, and three carriers with innumerable smaller craft inside. This was a convoy meant to break through the planet's defenses and either capture or kill anyone who resisted on the planet, and to do it quickly. They were also obviously Sumilitan ships. Kotovorians had been negotiating with the Sumilitans for a week now. They wanted to use the star as a starbase, allowing for easier trade and greater military presence in the area. The only issue is that it required some of the planet as building material, including the one Raktar was currently standing on. Raktar had been meeting with the Kotovorian Council, who were drawing up new plans and agreements on trade and military activities for the Sumilitans. The Sumilitans had had an issue with every plan that they'd proposed so far. That's when they got the final offer from the Sumilitans. Unconditional surrender, and they wouldn't raise the planet. Raktar ordered an immediate scan of the surrounding space and discovered the convoy. The entire negotiation had just been a ploy to buy time. The council sent out a request for help immediately after seeing the convoy, but Raktar already knew that there was no help out there. The Similitan convoy was only two weeks away, where the next nearest ships were three weeks away. It was a human convoy of only ten cruisers. The human sent an immediate reply, We'll be there to help as quickly as we can. While the grand gesture, it was of little hope. The human would arrive in a ready wrecked planet and then would promptly get wiped out. It was still more than anyone else had offered. The humans had been a bit of a strange race in the galaxy. They weren't that dangerous or crafty, nor do they cause more problems than most other races. It's just, whenever we question them about these issues, they would just say that it wasn't them, but some other group. However, it was just another group of humans. They didn't seem to have the same issue when it was a good deed. They seemed to be saying that they were all spreading throughout the galaxies as many species, managing to conquer space travel while still competing against one another. The humans appeared to care little for what you were, whether that was a human or an alien. You could be an enemy or an ally. The council sent out a reply. We graciously accept this offer of assistance and will be forever grateful for your help. An empty thanks for an empty assistance. Raktar worked on solving the problem at hand, the end of his world. However, no solutions came to mind. He sent out a surprise attack with his fastest missiles, but the Sumilitans were already ready and the missiles were easily intercepted. Days ticked by, with Raktar trying to get different tricks, hoping to slip through the crack in their armor. However, the Kotovorian world was then in range of the Sumilitans' missiles, forcing them to activate their shields. Now, only able to hide like a turtle in its shell, the Sumilitans continued firing missiles none of which would destroy the planet, but each would cripple the defense shield. As they bombarded the world, the Similitans convoy slowly creeped forward until two weeks had passed, and they sat on the Kotovorian's doorstep, 
with the destroyers almost fully charged. Raktar stood at his hollow display as he had been every day in the last two weeks, severely sleep-deprived, but still searching for solutions. The Similitan cruisers kept up the barrage, forcing our shields up. As a Raktar stared at the display, showing the scans of the battlefield, he thought he saw something briefly blink into existence behind the Similitan ships. It was too small to be a ship and was only there for a second, but Raktar still leaned in, focusing on that area. Soon hundreds of the little things were blinking into existence and then disappearing. Then a big red dot appeared at the same point as the Similitan cruiser, a direct hit. The Similitan convoy was being bombarded. Give me a visual shot of what just happened, Raktar barked out, and soon there was an image of a Similitan cruiser on the display. In slow motion, Raktar watched a missile coasting in. Each blip of light must have been the final course correction for the missile gliding the rest of the way to avoid being detected. Whoever had shot these had managed to get complete blindside attack on the Similitan convoy. Most of the ships didn't even have time to activate their shields. As if to answer everyone's thoughts on who their mysterious savior was, the transmission line cracked to life. This is the United Mars 45th Patrol Squad. We made it as quick as we could, the transmission line said. The United Mars was a human faction, as they called them, with their main base being on the fourth planet in the original human solar system. The patrol squads didn't carry heavy weapons. They were mostly there to help clear out asteroids, help ships that ran into trouble, and set up minor squabbles between groups. Raktor held down the transmission button and said, We weren't expecting anyone to make it in time. We appreciate the help. It won't be enough to take down the destroyers, but it gives us a fighting chance. That was a lie. Even with taking down or crippling all the cruisers and carriers, the five destroyers would still fire and raise most of the planet before we could stop them. Raktar hoped that the humans had advanced more than just their propulsion systems. Hopefully, they had a secret weapon with them too. The transmission line sprang to life again. We couldn't leave you out and dry. We know how hard it is to set up on a new world. I do have one request, though. Could you send out a rescue squad to come pick up the rest of my boys? Raktar didn't know what to make of this. How could the human be so certain of his victory, but also so certain that he wouldn't be able to land himself? Before he could think of the answer, though, one of the reconnaissance officers spoke up. They're, they're, they're going too fast. They won't be able to stop. In a split second, Raktar realized that the human hadn't managed any propulsion advances. They had simply fired their engines without leaving enough time to stop. But Why? They should know that they won't be able to stop the destroyers with the weapons they had. Then it clicked. Show me their trajectory, Raktar shouted at the reconnaissance officer. In a second, it was up. The 40-foot patrol squad was making a direct line towards the destroyers. Raktar jumped up onto the transmission. Change your trajectory immediately. You can still just do a flyby. A reply came back from the human ship, but we didn't understand what it meant. Then the first ship slammed to the destroyer. The Similitans had already put the shields up on the destroyers, but it didn't matter. The shields were meant to disrupt missiles and take small explosions, something like a nuclear bomb. It stood no chance against the force of a cruiser at full speed. The destroyer's armor didn't fare much better as the cruiser slammed into it, ripping it apart. A second cruiser followed up, smashing into the same destroyer. Each of the human cruisers smashed into the destroyers on kamikaze runs. In just a few seconds, 
Where the destroyers had stood, there was just scrap metal. The whole room sat in dead silence. Just a little while ago, everyone had been preparing for death and the death of everyone on the planet. Now they were handed a victory on a silver platter. Raktar finally broke the silence. Prepare the rescue mission. Should we ask for permission from the council? An officer asked. No, Raktar said before sitting in his chair. There was a rush of activity as everyone jumped to work to show their gratitude. A scan showed several emergency lifeboats sending out distress signals from the direction the human convoy had come from. A few days later, the emergency lifeboats were picked up and the whole story learned. The 40-foot patrol squad had jettisoned everything that they could to lighten their ships, which included the crew. The only thing left on the ships were missiles, fuel, and the captain. They all cheered when they heard the attack had been successful. But it was nothing when we told them the captain's final words. The entire 40-foot patrol squad went wild. Yevikaye, motherfucker! End of story. Story number two. No Missiles Fly, written by Rednall 97 What the hell was that attack? Durok, with the ship Lord of the Badu, a heavy bomber corvette, demanded to know. One of the officers answered. The trial, my daughter. The, its reactor went supercritical, and uh, we were too close when it blew. Damage report! My lord, only medium structural damage. We lost engine number three and five, and our dorsal and starboard point defenses are down. So we can't keep up with the formation and are vulnerable to an attack. Ah! Washed it! Empty the payload bays and head for the nearest job point. My lord, the mission is now a no-go. And if we want to escape from these damned apes, we need to be as fast and as nimble as possible. Just release the bombs. Don't arm them, though. We don't want a minefield in this part of the void. Understood, my lord. Uh, releasing payload. Inert detonators. Good. Now get us out of here. If the humans realize our situation... Another officer cuts in. My lord, enemy hunter-killer approaching. It seems he knows exactly where our defenses are crippled. In one moment, every conversation on the bridge died into complete silence. HKs were hard to deal with on a good day, but with a limping, basically defenseless ship, it spelled certain doom. The shipyard was the first to speak. All the stress and hectic gone and replaced with an eerie calm. It was an honor to serve with you all. And may the Durlock judge you fairly. He turned to his tactical officer. How long until we are in firing range? We're in range in six, five, four, three, two, one. Nothing. No explosion. No lock on alarm. No launch warning. Nothing. Why doesn't that damn human shoot? Unknown, my lord, but it matches speed and heading approximately 200 meters to starboard. Comes, put a video feed on the screen. Yes, my lord. What is it doing? Evasive maneuvers. This time was the pilot answered. I don't believe so. If I remember correctly, they have an emergency communication protocol based on the craft movements. Let me check. Um, uh, oh, here. Yeah. It, it wants us to follow, presumably to a human carrier, where we would be taken prisoner. I think we can all agree that we don't want to accept that. The shipyard looked around the bridge, only to see signs of agreement all around. Signal back, negative. Yes, my lord. He responds with confirmation, but neither splits nor attacks. There, what is this ape thinking? Whatever, head for the jump point. He must just let us go. 
Understood, my lord. The hunter-killer is still following in the defense blind spot. The tense silence held for a few minutes until an officer cried out, Where did that come from? My lord, the destroyer up ahead. We're in its firing range in 20 seconds. No way that we can get out in that time. Then the pilot. Hunter-killer reducing its distance, now less than 20 meters of a hull. What? Is it trying to ram us? No. The only reason that would make remote sense would be that it's impossible for the destroyer to shoot without also damaging the HK. A hunter-killer protecting an enemy! I can't believe it! We're out of destroyer's range now. One minute to jump. On the screen, you could still see the human ship. Now, close enough to make out the pilot in the cockpit. It looked straight into the camera, made a sharp salute and turned its craft away from the Badoo and accelerated away. Everyone on the bridge stared at the screen until it was bathed in a dazzling colors of slipsprace. No one will ever believe what just happened. Absolute madmen, all of them, but madmen with honor. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1305. Greetings, ladies and mandelgens, and welcome to this narration of the short story taken from Reddit with the author's approval. Just quickly, the previous version of this video had audio skips in them caused by, I'm not entirely sure, I think it's the USB interface. Anyways, I had to re-record it, and this is the re-recording, so there shouldn't be any skips in this one. And, as always, I hope you enjoy The Man Who Found Humanity. I don't know how many times I've already told this story. I'm not even sure if I'm the best person to do so. I was merely there when it happened, for reasons that are neither noble nor exciting. I was captain of the Kulun, a fine, if old, Kantari Z3 reclamation hauler. We were out there, at the fringe of civilized space, when our rays picked up an object. He was clearly traversing in an artificial trajectory, but rather slow, all things considered. Most likely, it was what we were looking after. Some debris of the golden time, some relic, and that got it dropped, pushed outwards from the inner systems. With our FTL, it was easy to catch up to them. Finding them was the difficult task. We did not think much of it actually drifting inwards, the spiral, but there could have been plenty of reasons. Being caught in a gravity well with a faulty navigational system then decided to come to life and burn the thrust of a half second. Who cares? We certainly didn't. We just saw a way to make good credits. When we got a closer look and actually got the can into range of our active sensors suite, things got a bit weird, so to say. It was no pattern of ships our systems recognized, and neither was it damaged beyond the point. It even had some nuclear propulsion engine running, as if it were looking at some antiquity from a museum. But no, it was not antiquity. Well, it kind of was, but it was called the insurance. We only learned this long after the Union's xenolinguists had made their breakthrough. But it was an apt name. A name nobody needed to translate, just as a mere glance was all it took of what it went through. It was old. It was torn and damaged. Not as much as you would think, but it certainly wore the marks of age and weariness. And it still worked like a flawless clockwork. I'm so thankful that we were cautious at that point. They did not respond to our hails, did not react to our signals, not in a way that we would have noticed. 
We could have used the cutters and ripped the hull open to reveal the secrets, but I could never forgive myself for that. So we synchronized, went into our suits, and prepared to walk in space. To uh, knock, maybe? We did not get so far, though. Or we did not have to, as they opened their hatch themselves. And so we met in space, only surrounded by the void. He was alone. They had closed the hatch behind him, and his suit looked old, just as the ship. It would have been a white at some point, but now it was just grey. His face was covered by a golden shield as he approached me. Guided by some primitive propulsion system, he still managed to utilize in a graceful manner. There he was. There was I. Now I knew that there were people. I knew that those most likely tried to communicate just as we did. I told my comms to look for anything. No matter what, just anything. He, though, he raised his hand. I was anxious, I'm not lying, but he just waved it and opened his golden shield as he raised his veil. What I saw was a fleshy face, organic to the eye. It had plenty of fur and was just foreign to me. But when I met its eyes with mine, I saw a being that was just as much at home in the void as I was. He certainly was not afraid, just exhausted. Relieved, maybe. Back then, I did not know how to read their expressions, neither do I know today. But I just felt it. I like to believe that I did. That was when I found the first human. After that, things went out of my way. We alerted the Union to our discovery as it was law, and without much delay, they dispatched a Verona great cruiser. It was their policy for a new contact for a space-faring species. A display of power, if you so want, without deploying overwhelming numbers to not be mistaken for a threat. The last time they did this, well, I can't remember. In the end, it was just comical to witness the technological marvel they dispatched to deal with that, again with an attached propulsion system. It turned out fine, though. The cruiser was large enough to shelter the humans, take them in. Not that their vessel was falling apart, bar from it, but just so that they could be treated, monitored, and, I suppose, quarantined. Brought under control, if you so will. Not because we had ill intents, simply to get ahead of the issue if there was any. And then, nothing happened for quite a while. Language certainly was the biggest problem, but the Union got rid of that one. So the talk started, and they took a while as well. The story we then learned, though, it went around the entire Union. They called themselves human. They had lived on Earth. They had killed their home. To us, this was known tragedy. There were just so many steps a civilization could fail and doom itself before it reached space, but we decided not to interfere. Within the inner systems, nobody was left that would even qualify for that protection anymore, though so it did not really concern us on an everyday basis. We just knew the stuff could happen, and apparently so did the humans. But there, our expectations, based on observations made centuries ago, proved wrong. This was no doomsday scenario that just happened without escape. They make their own. Driven by desperation, they had united, started what they called the Exodus. They banded together, facing certain doom, and launched themselves to the stars. 
They knew only a tiny fraction could get away, but still, they dedicated everything to it. To the arcs. Ultimately, they had to build seven arcs, all fundamentally different in approach to avoid a single flaw within the design or undermine the entire mission. There were no test runs for this. Each one was under the oversight of their former national space agencies and crewed by a random yet qualified selection of humans. No regard given for ethnic differences. And so their greatest undertaking started, and we could only listen in disbelief when we learned about the dimensions of this exodus. For over a thousand years, they had lived and died within their machines. Generations had passed each other as they maintained their tiny and vulnerable habitats, pushing ever forward to find the end of their journey. The ship had looked like antiquity to me, but then I realized that I was looking at a technological marvel. No other ship in the Union history or as older had ever been in service for such a long time. Without pause. Endurance. How truly fitting. When they started to trust us, they told us the rough directions of the other ships had taken. Of the seven that launched a thousand years ago, we found six. And unique they were. Endurance was a can, nothing else to say about it. But then, persistence was a giant swarm of decentralized and horribly inefficient modules that were created simply to negate the impact of a singular catastrophic failure. Or tenacity, a complex of spinning sections and zero-g facilities. After their rescue, we offered them fertile grounds, paradise worlds that had never been settled on before and had been protected by the Union to be conserved. For the humans, though, for the trail that they had behind them, we thought it wrong to keep them from a new world. They had destroyed their old one, yes, but they had also earned their right to a world to call home again. What we did not expect, they declined. At first we thought that they had just gone mad or arrogant to decline such an offer, but then we realized. It was funny, if you ask me. When our xenobiologists researched their language, they did so with the curiosity of a scientist. Humans don't think much of it if they call themselves humans. Why should they? It is normal for them. But when we researched their tongue, we learned it meant being from the ground, being from Earth. I still marvel. Could they not let Earth pass? Forget their mother, replace it with another one? Or did they become what no race truly was? Did their ordeal turn them into the only, truly, void-born species known to the Union? For us, space is just a means to an end. We travel it to achieve things, get from one location to the other, to interact with foreign nations, to assist the greater good within the Union. But to them, it may have just been home. All they wanted, diligently asked for, was assistance technology, and machinery to get their own feet, and so he did. We elevated them to our technological levels, but quickly noticed that they did not merely adapt. They integrated, they put their own twist on our designs, and we could hardly fault them for it. They had made it through space for a thousand years. What critique could we offer that was even capable to rival with the feat that they managed to perform? Then they asked for asteroids resources, things that existed in abundance, and so we naturally agreed. We admired them for their spirit, loved to watch their progress, 
and maybe even condescended them like a bad project of ours. But then it dawned on us. No mere pet would be able to do what they did, and their progress told many stories of ingenuity, their perseverance, and their power of will. Where they failed, and they often did, they picked up, learned from it, and went on, as if they had to prove themselves to us, as if they reveled in the idea to pay us back for our help, but to also be more than just a curiosity. And so they pulled that off as well. They made their home in space, all of it. Central Station is merely a token of the unity, the seat of their captain's council that oversees their patrician houses and elects the admiralty in times of need. When we think of traveling the stars, we think of humans. The union trade is in their firm hands, so is most of the private astro mining. They became a member of the Union Senate, and only time will tell where they'll be going from here. I often guessed asked how I feel about them. If I had wanted to simply ignore that speck on my senses, that was the endurance. I honestly don't know. They deserve their place, and I can understand those that are afraid of their ambitions. In the end, though, I just don't believe that we could have just avoided humanity if I'd done differently. All I'm being grateful for is that we met them as friends, offered our aid where they needed it. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1306. Greetings, ladies and mental gents, and welcome to this re-recording of the narration of two stories taken from Reddit. I had to re-record them because of a jumping audio issue, which was caused by a corrupted file or something, I'm I'm not entirely sure. But I had to re-record it so that the jumping stopped. Anyways, here we are. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Story number one. Count Your Lucky Stars, written by Deomek. We didn't expect the funky blobs to be so friendly. It was a hell of a coincidence to run into one of the pacifistic races in our arm of the galaxy. And as our first contact too, how lucky for humanity. The fungaloids, as we called them, were about two feet tall, rainbow-colored, and exceptionally squishy. They were amphibious and with their primary settlements both underwater. The colony mother of the fungaloids could live for a thousand years, and the individual buds could live for hundreds. The fungaloids were so excited to meet us. So excited. The first time their ambassador met ours, they gently took our hand and insisted on a tour of the human spaceship. The fungaloid was absolutely fascinated by our decorative water fountain, asking all kinds of questions about its purpose and construction. When it was humans' turn to visit them, there was an almost identical water fountain proudly displayed in the central area. The only difference was the little angels had been replaced with little blobs with wings. They apologized for the inaccuracy, and they still hadn't gotten hang of a human form yet. They were unerringly curious, cheerful, and friendly. Human languages were built a bit different for them to understand, since they mostly communicated with FTL telepathy. But our scientists worked together and cobbled together a translator that allowed them to approximate speech. That was the start of even more enthusiasm, as hard as that has to believe. The fungaloids offered us new technology, spearheaded a cultural exchange, and encouraged us to visit their planets, which were perfectly comfortable for humans. We kept waiting for the catch. Humanity was never this lucky. 
The fungaloids and uh, the hidden nukes, or something, right? Weren't they just weakening our guard just to stab us in the back? Years passed, and we finally started to accept their sincerity as the truth. It was in humanity's nature to give trust when trust was given, to give knowledge when knowledge was given, to give when given. We made it our first contact with species that went far more as expected, they ran the gamut from wary to borderline hostile, but most seemed willing to engage in a minimum of trade and stay in their corner. As we associated more with other species, the fungaloids started to make sense. We were the first ones to actually communicate with them, and their absolute aversion to violence didn't matter in the galactic society that preferred isolation. But humans were social creatures, and we gravitated to the one species who actually wanted to socialize. It helped that our needs were so complementary. The fungaloids minimally settled the land, preferring the bulk of their habitats underwater, while we cared less for the ocean floor. It became common for fungaloids and humans to share a planet. Visiting each other's cities became just as normal. Fungaloids would hop around with buckets of water as they traversed the sidewalk of our concrete jungles, and humans would swim around in pressurized suits as they were wandering the organic halls of the planned mega-reefs. While dogs and cats were still humanity's best friends, fungaloids became humanity's platonic life partners. Fungaloids love cats and dogs too. The easiest way to cheer up a fungaloid, besides giving them fruit, was to let them pat fur or hair. Something about the texture made them do the equivalent of laugh uncontrollably. And underwords, it tickled. It was true that fungaloids were older, more advanced species. They had colonized many more planets than humans, and their technology was initially more advanced. But with how open they were, the relationship between races felt more like that between adult siblings. Sure, the age mattered when they were both young, but it didn't anymore. We asked multiple times if they ever were afraid that we'd betray them. The answer was always a resounding... They had more faith in our goodness than we did. So when the fungaloids began to scream in agony and slowly die, we were of course concerned. We asked them what was wrong, though maybe ask is a little understanding it. We were a tad freaked out at this point. The fungaloids told us they had never hit anything before. They had no intention of starting now. Their colonies, the far-side colonies that didn't interact with humanities, were under attack, and their enemies were devious indeed. In line with their parasitic nature, they had found a way to turn FTL communication between colony mothers into a weapon. They were doing something that caused incomprehensible pain to spread like a virus from one mother to another. They were doing their best to defend themselves, to search for a solution. They had no luck. The fungaloids asked for our help in tracking the problem, but they implored us to save ourselves first. There was no need for us to put ourselves in danger. We disagreed. Lieutenant Cinder Rodrigo's favorite professor in the academy had been a fungaloid. The human name was Happy Strawberry, and they taught spatial navigation in a way that turned it from everyone's hated subject into the most intuitive. On the last day of class... Professor Strawberry brought a fruit platter, including their namesake, and an obscene amount of alcohol. 
The students demolished the drinks and got roaringly drunk, and Professor Strawberry demolished the platter and got equally drunk off the sugars and the human fruits. To this day, it was one of Sindhu's favorite memories. Captain Palumi Smith had grown up next door to Good Morning and Yellow Garland, two fungaloids who kept a pantry full of human food that they couldn't eat. On the days his father forgot to feed him, he would go to their house and eat nutritionally balanced meals as they told them stories of their travels. He still calmed them more often than he calmed his parents, and when he had planet leave, he always made sure to visit them. To this day, their pantry remained fully stocked. General Amy Ibrahim, when she was younger, arrogant and directionless, had attempted to swim into the deepest trench on Shasta too. Her breathing apparatus malfunctioned, and she would have died there if the colony mother hadn't noticed through her hyphae. Several buds rescued her and brought her back to the brief city. She spent two weeks there recovering from hypoxia, terrified out of her mind that she would never regain the capacity for speech. The colony mother communicated with her telepathically, soothing her worries and providing her with the reassurance and motivation to both recover and turn her life around. Each human of the fleet had a similar story. Each human of the fleet had volunteered for the dangerous job of chasing the alien bastards from fungaloid territory into uncharted space. Other species were confused as to why we'd poured so much effort into fighting a war that wasn't ours. The parasites were even more confused. They'd asked us multiple times why we were fighting them. First, if they were willing to attack peaceful, pacifistic species, then they would eventually attack us. Second, our settlements were intertwined with the fungaloids, so we were proactively protecting our borders. Third... And most important, they are our friends, so leave them the feck alone. The war was long and grueling, but we pushed the parasites to a point where victory was ours. Human and fungaloid minds had worked together to find the cure to the viral weapon. Then we traced a path to their ships and from their ships to their homeworlds. We surrounded the planet and demanded they surrender, but we received it. In the aftermath, during the celebration and recovery, the fungaloids told us how very grateful they were. Truly, they said, they had been extraordinarily lucky to beat us. We disagreed. We were just being good friends. After all, the fungaloids would have done the same for us. The parasites were the fortunate ones. They had our friends' good nature to thank for their relatively gentle treatment. We made this clear to them, and anyone who would attack us, if they or anyone else tried to hurt our friends again, they wouldn't be so lucky. End of story. Story number two. Be realistic. Written by Echoing Cascade. Patronum, a awesome male, was sitting at a table in a nice little cafe near his building complex, eating scones and drinking coffee. Potronahem, explain to me why I should ask for that. Across the table, a human was finishing his eggs and bacon. Duh. Well, uh, let me put it like this. A man once said, be realistic, demand the impossible. You understand the meaning, right? Potronahem took a sip of his coffee, a bite of his scone, wiped away the crumbs that answered, not even a little, no. 
Well, I'm not sure either, but I always assumed that it had to do with how set in our ways humans are, and how hard it is to change the mindset of an individual. How is asking the impossible going to help? Well, you see, the only way that small change can be attained is by trying to implement an absurdly big one. Like a compromise sort of deal. Exactly, yes. Makes sense, I guess, sir. Okay, I'll try it. Great! They both got up, paid for their breakfast, and started to leave. Pachinahem stopped before leaving the cafe. He looked worried for a second. And you are sure that asking Sarah for a threesome with her sister is going to somehow lead to her agreeing that I don't have to go with her shopping tomorrow? Dylan smiled like a kid opening Christmas gifts. Oh, trust me. I know, human girls, she will definitely cancel tomorrow's trip. Pachinahem nodded, and they left the store. Very well. When should I go tell Sarah? The sooner the better. I'll come with you for moral support. Thanks, Dylan. You're a good friend. Don't mention it, man. Dylan took out his datapad and checked something. What are you doing? Just making sure I have enough battery to film a video. Why? Oh, uh, no reason. Uh, let's go. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1307. Story number two. Bonds, written by Algy, Father Anthracite. The creature was engulfed in darkness. It was all the creature knew, because, for the first time, the creature was conscious. It began to struggle, because it felt confined. It pushed with all of its legs, and felt something give away. It pushed harder, using all of its strength. Light flooded into its world. It paused, drawing a deep breath and waiting for the world to be not so bright. After a few more minutes, it pushed, then struggled some more, until, at last, the shell fell away. It rolled into a warm, dry sand. Its tail unfurled and lashed about, its limbs stretched to the fullest. Its impressive jaw opened, and it yawned, breathing deeply the cool air. Its wings flapped lightly. It began to wander, passing fragments of other shells, he passed a few eggs, still unhatched, destined perhaps to never hatch at all. He was hungry and sniffed the air. Something smelt enchanting, metallic and fresh. The claws on its forelegs sunk into the set as it runs towards the source of the scent. It rounds a pile of shell fragments and spots a massive creature. The creature looked down at the flash of movement. After a while... It released a breath and reached towards the creature in the sand. The creature, sure, it had met its parent, leapt into its waiting hands and was lifted up towards the face of its progenitor. Its thin forked tongue whooped about and licked the face, cementing its flavor in the creature's memory as Mama. It was laid across the shoulders of its mom and they moved from the nest towards the ever stronger scent of food. The creature licked the air and its parent... Glad for the warmth and respite. Several moments later, it was placed on a rough surface, and the parent reached into a container and pulled out food. The creature bounced, attacking the lump of food before Mother could set it down. It was a silvery triangular lump with a flat red scales, and the opposite point was split. To one side of the split was the front, and the back was tasty, looking little orbs. Mother shook the lump gently, and the creature used all four sets of claws and its jaws to lock onto the lump. It spread its wings wide, trying to look bigger. 
There was a quick flash, and after a few more shakes, Mother relinquished the lump. The creature happily tore off a chunk, exposing more red. It swallowed the chunk, nearly whole, barely chewing. It tore off another lump. Mother stroked its head as it ate. Between bites it purred softly, a harsh, gargling noise that still managed to be pleasant. Mother leaned in and said, Your name is Daisy. Daisy looked up at Mother. Daisy. 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 She goggled happily and began to prance on the fish head as she was eating happily. Over the next hour, she would eat the entire thing, scales, eyes, and bones. Mother had sat in his chair, watching with a smile, occasionally rolling Daisy over and scratching her belly. After Daisy finished her fish head, she rolled up and coiled and slapped. Mother picked her up and carried her home. Post-hatch incident, 312th day, Gullstan year 4312, author Chris Nichols. After clearing the nest area of predators, hatching event proceeded as normal. 47 viable offspring were observed entering the habitat. After a hatch event completed, technicians entered the nest to gather shell fragments and non-viable eggs for further study. After approximately two hours, a late hatching egg spawned a runt. The hatchling was not observed due to its egg being surrounded by other shell fragments. Hatchling encountered the technicians as they were gathering shell fragments. It approached me and licked the air near me, refusing to move for nearly a minute. Rather than allow the creature to die, I chose to accept it as a child and allowed it to imprint on me. I then fed it some leftover fish parts, scraps from seeding the surrounding area for its siblings. Technician Jones took a photograph of the wing pattern for documentation and identification. Due to the coloration of the animal, with a bright orange spine fading out to yellow and then white, the animal was named Daisy. The standard coloring, as well as the size, less than half the size of its broodmates, is what led me to believe that it would not survive in the wild. In the past 48 hours, it's already doubled in size to nearly 65 centimeters. It weighs approximately 3 kilograms still far below average. Food so far has been raw fish parts. Training will begin soon, and the little one is both energetic and curious. It seems almost as though she understands me. Ten years later. Daisy sat at the table, head and neck laid flat. She reached almost the center of the white surface. Don't give me those eyes. That's not fair, Chris said. She just looked up at him sadly. No, we're not going out. It's raining buckets and you'll catch a cold. I'll catch a cold. Do you want that? Remember the last time I got sick? Daisy sat upright. She recalled the last time father had been ill. She hated it. He was almost too hot to touch, and he couldn't eat the fish she'd brought for him. She dragged a compact close and tapped out a message with her claws. The voice synth read out, Sorry, father. We can stay in. She hung her head a little, sad that she couldn't go play in the rain. She loved to splash in puddles, but father wouldn't let her during the cold, dark cycle. Come on, we can go run the garage obstacle course. Speed run! I'll even light the ring of fire! She poked up and nodded happily. She popped out of her chair and ran under the table to her dad's legs, and quickly climbed up and around his body until she hung from his back. Her rear legs wrapped around his waist and her front legs over his shoulders, her tail dragged on the floor. She nuzzled her head next to his and turned towards the garage door. He kissed the tiny dragon daughter on the cheek and said, Papa loves Daisy.
End of story. Story number one. What We Deserved, written by Rednor97. Even before I was born, my race ruled over the known universe. Not by force, but by sheer promise of peace and cooperation. Most species join us fairly quickly. But even those that didn't, within a generation or two, there was no species that didn't. No. Actually, there was one that never agreed to join. Not because they didn't want to, but because they were never asked. Too violent to ever live in a peaceful society, our leaders claimed. They were killed themselves within a millennia, our scientists stated. Too fond of war to lay down their weapons, our media shouted. Too evil to ever change their ways, the people agreed. It shall never be visited, the courts ruled. There were many more arguments, all calling for the damnation of that planet. Every single one lost to time, just like that planet, and the beings living there, stowed away in unassuming books in the deepest parts of the oldest libraries, until I found them again. Humanity and their home, the pale blue marble, Earth. I was sure that it was impossible for a race that evil and undeserving of our friendship to exist, so I decided to search for them. Well, it was a bit more complicated than that. Spaceflight may be easy and cheap nowadays, but buying a spaceship and flying it to the edge of nowhere all alone isn't. After planning was done, the ship was bought and the supplies organized. I took off for the most daring expedition my kind had seen for centuries. After about three months, I found their solar system, four terrestrial planets separated by four gas giants by an asteroid belt, circled by a ninth, much smaller planet on its very own orbit. Just as it was described in the old books, only even more beautiful. But once I broke through the Oort cloud, I noticed something was wrong. The old texts specifically mention how the night side of the third planet, Earth, was supposed to shine enough to be seen from billions of miles away. But even from the orbit of the next planet, there was only darkness, not a single light to be seen. My worries only grew when I saw the day side of it. This supposedly oh-so-beautiful green blue marble has been turned into an ugly grey and brown ball. Were the old ones right? Had these humans used the world-ending nuclear weapons? Was all of this... Or not? No. There were no signs of radiation that that would have caused. I let the computer run a few simulations, and it turned out that Earth was hit by two Category 15 asteroids in less than a thousand years. Yes, each of those could kill a live planet several times over, and they were hit twice. I mourned and wept for those people, those humans, billions, if not trillions, dead. Not because of their own aggression or evil, but due to a random act of nature, it could have so easily been prevented, had not someone thousands of years ago deemed them too violent to interact with our society. Were they? Maybe. But did they deserve this? Definitely not. I took some last pictures, and made some last scans, and prepared to leave this place, and show our government and our people the consequences of our pride and the shameful decision it caused. Until suddenly, one of the senses pinged. Life support environment suboptimal. Active signs of life positive. 
active signs of intelligent life, positive, social, structure, tribal, and feudal. Life. Intelligent life. Humans survived to world enders, and they survived. But if they wouldn't have gotten help then, they would have gone extinct soon after. And I refuse to allow that to happen before they at least got a chance to join us, like they should have all those years ago. Arilla La, second discoverer of soul savior of humanity, 100 years after peaceful introduction of humanity into the intergalactic community. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1308. Story number two. AITA were inviting a Terran as my consort to my co-worker's life-fighting ceremony. Written by Fork Oof. I, Mararekeke, female, 23, was asked by my co-worker, Mignac, rare, female, 157, to attend her and her selected's life-binding ceremony. I asked if I could bring a consult, and she said that it would be acceptable. So, I invited Jake, Terran, male, 25, whom I had known for three cycles and had recently started to get very close with him. The problem is, when we made arrangements for dietary needs, came to light that Jake is, in fact, Terran. Mignac became upset, saying that the Terrans were dangerous, warmongering deathworlders, and that I was being reckless and inconsiderate inviting him. I told her that Jake has promised to be on his best behavior, that I've known him for cycles, and that he would never hurt anyone, but uh, she insists that Terrans can't help but cause trouble and leave destruction in their wake. So, am I the arsehole? End of story. Story number one. The Dead Human, written by Alex de la Kluge. What the feck is that? Aleria looked at her partner and co-worker, a single eyebrow raised behind a gas mask. She was an elf, a tall and somewhat scrawny beauty. Craig, on the other hand, was a bulky orc, wearing no gas mask and only a yellow tank top that clung to his greenish-brown, muscle-bound torso. The body that prompted Alara's profanity was sprawled on the mahogany floor of the apartment in a larger building, which the police department had already evacuated, with no face. I have no idea. Doesn't look like one of us. Alara began looking around the room. The body was mangled beyond all recognition. No face. No name. The slightly demeated front of the skull was bare. Sure, the PD's artist could probably recreate the face out of that, but the artist wasn't part of the first response unit. Craig pulled out a notebook from the back pocket of his jeans and began making notes while Alera knelt by the body and expected it. This thing is smarter than me and not as bulky as you. Could it be a frig? No chance, frigs aren't pale. Then maybe a garon. It's obviously male, fits the profile. The Garen's bones are more porous. Look at this thing's skull. I think its bones might be denser than mine. Alera gently touched the body with a gloved hand, moving its head to the side. The body had fallen face up, the somewhat long hair covering the sides of its face. It was soaked with dry blood, deep crimson. Alera reeled. Iron blood! This thing's an iron blood! Give me new gloves! Craig struggled to find a new pair while Alera quickly removed hers and put a new pair. It was only one drop of blood that got on her skin. It would feel like acid. Not a particularly strong one, but an acid nonetheless. 
When her gloves had changed, Greg took over and moved her hair away from where the body's ear was supposed to be, but it had been cut off, and the other one was there and rounded, unlike Elidera's knife-like ears or Craig's slightly spiky ones. There's a little blood around the body, probably wasn't killed yet. Let's just call the morticians. Ten minutes later, two men came with a gurney and a sack. They laid the gurney down and reached to grab the body. Elidera watched the men strain to pick the body up. Once. Twice. But it wouldn't budge. It's too heavy, said one of the men. Greg, a hand. The bulky orc grinned and leaned down. That was going to be easy. So easy. He reached to grab the dead body from under the armpits and put it up. Or tried to. His muscles strained to the other two morticians tried to put it up, but it just didn't work. It wouldn't budge. What the fuck is this thing? Greg always shouted. He could easily pull up weights as big as a lira in the PD's gym, but a single whatever the feck this was wasn't going to beat him. He strained again and moved the body closer to the gurney. Even if we put him on this thing, we won't be able to carry him down seven flights of stairs, Alira said with a sigh. That won't be necessary. Greg looked confused at Alira, and Alira looked back at him, then both gazed at the entrance to the room. The morticians were too busy packing their things up and preparing to head back down to their vans to get a different equipment for this job. I could get him. The one that spoke from the doorframe was lithe and scrawny, tall and wearing a gas mask. She slowly reached up to put it down, revealing identical features to Alira. It was as if staring into a mirror. The only difference was the hair color. Mirror Alira's was blue, while Alira's was blonde. I was hoping, honestly, that the first response unit would be slower. Didn't quite want to work with myself, but uh, it's good as anything else. Look, miss, uh, Craig began, this is an investigation, and if you obstruct it in any way, we'll have to arrest you. Mira Alira put up her hands. Fine, Craig. Fine. You know my name. Alira shot daggers at Craig. Of course she does, dummy. She's me. Alira grinned. Listen. I was given freedom by command to handle this as I see fit, and that's what I plan to do, considering it's a first contact situation for your side, and I know that half of what I've just said is nonsensical to you, but hear me out first. Now, even the morticians were attentive, looking at the mirror Alira with a gurney folded and a sack abandoned on the floor. You take that body to the morgue and you make its necropsy. The report shouldn't be seen by anyone. The moment the necropsy is finished, the body should burn. The reason is very simple. You don't have that race here. What race? What does here mean? Craig asked, a hand subtly reaching for his gun holster. Mira Alera gestured around. I mean here, on your planet, in this world, in this, uh, alternative. And him? Alera asked, pointing at the body abandoned. That is a named human. It has blood with high concentrations of iron and impressive strength relative to body mass. A body filled with enough bacteria to turn an entire gnome city into a quarantine zone. He was a friend. Two days later, Alura and Mira Alura sat in a cafe in another city, where both of them knew no one could know them. No one wouldn't wonder why two Alvin twin sisters were enjoying lattes in a cozy place while the snow fell in the streets. So, let me get this straight, began Alura. There is an almost infinite number of alternatives that people could potentially access where things have gone just a bit differently, and ours doesn't have humans. Correct. And there are at least seven alternatives in which only humans exist. 
Alternative Command was created by humans specifically to slow their spread in some alternatives. It's not easy living side by side with a human. I, uh, I don't get it. Why would their race create an institution tasked specifically with keeping their race out of other people's affairs? There is a reason, but I'm not authorized to tell you. However, let me put it like this. We elves are pretty, and by our very nature, we feel sick if we have to kill. Sick enough that rather than go through that, we will not. In all alternatives I visit, there wasn't a single elf killer. Sure, we might steal, we might lie, yada yada, but we never kill. Orcs are strong. They have solution-oriented thinking. They see an obstacle as an obstacle and make sure that they can overcome it everywhere. They are like that. Humans, on the other hand, can kill, lack, can lack empathy, can do science, are capable of acts of great good and great evil. Don't get me wrong, Alera. If you want, we could easily make sure none of you for even remember what the body looked like. But the point is, sooner or later, your alternative will meet humans Command would prefer you are prepared for that eventuality. Alara looked at Alate and sighed. All her life, since she was a young, starry-eyed girl, she had wished to work for the PD. This was above her pay grade and above her qualifications. This is how you recruit people into your line of work. Mira Alara grinned and nodded. Yep, kinda. Well, I'm in. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1309 Story number 2 Ballistic Testing, written by Warpmind Theron Kinetics Laboratory So you're certain of your calculations? Positive. These Terran weapons are crude but efficient, chemical propellant-based slug throwers. The Ambassador was most cooperative with sharing their most powerful infantry weapons by comparison. The Theron Engineer, the Rothood, smirked as he held up the spreadsheet it's definitely a bit more powerful than ours, but still within 80% of our armor's capacity. Our soldiers can wade through a storm of projectiles unbothered and start hewing the Terrans apart with plasma blades. They haven't even figured out plasma blades yet. This will be so one-sided. Even the High Chancellor will deem it a disappointment. The CERN Ambassador Zahar nodded in satisfaction. I can't begin to comprehend all of those numbers. But I will take your word for it. The conquest will commence shortly. If you so desire, I can arrange for a seat of honor in the first transporter. I do indeed so desire, but yeah, I'm sure the Terran ambassador will require a weapon again soon enough. If nothing else, then to ensure his passing is with honor intact, rather than a grisly execution after we've enslaved his people. With his enthusiastic assistance, yeah, I've already boxed it up for you. Terran Embassy a week later. Ambassador Zahar strolled into the embassy with a bit more spring in his step than usual, and cheerfully greeted the embassy guards and presented the weapon that he was returning. After a few minutes of the anticipated red tape, he was waved through and could finally greet the human again as an equal for now. A most joyous morning to you, Ambassador Smythe. Fortune sings over my house and myself. I hope you can say the same. Joel Smythe sighed and looked at the thern. Not quite so joyous for me, I'm afraid. Uh, seems like an invasion fleet just managed to sneak by our defenses and landed on Earth, dropping off of an impressive infantry force before communications were cut. Uh, my last message was we were still trying to identify the invaders, but uh, 
I hate to bring the mood down, but what can I do for you, Ambassador Zahar? Zahar offered up the box that he'd brought along. I am sorry to hear things are so bleak. I hope that the absence of the weapon you lent us hasn't caused any problems in that regard. Smythe arched an eyebrow as he took the old, well-preserved Colt M1911A1 out of the box. Ah, thank you. I I trust you found it enlightening. Zahar nodded. Indeed, it was most enlightening to examine humanity's most powerful weapons. We may have a market for them, if you're keen on selling. Smythe looked at his counterplot quizzically. Humanity's most powerful weapons? Uh, This isn't... Oh, I'm so sorry. When we last spoke, I thought you were inquiring about my most powerful weapon. This old thing has been in the family for generations. One of my ancestors used it in the most destructive war on Earth. A few hundred years ago. No, 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 it's just well kept. An old handgun, decently powerful and reliable in its day. But I don't think it was ever the most powerful, even for a handgun. He tapped a small console. If you want to see something powerful... I have some ancient video clips to show you, courtesy of humanity's weird predilection for keeping copies of everything for future. Here's something called a 20mm rifle, a one-man weapon against a car engine. Zahar turned a little green as he watched the abomination of a weapon throw a metal slug straight through a few layers of cast iron. What? This is what your soldiers use? Smythe shrugged. Not really. These are centuries-old designs. Most RVs have far better weapons nowadays. Better recoil compensators, longer range, better penetration. As a species, we've really taken the stone-throwing concept to extremes. Zahar nodded slowly. I see. Well, um, I only really came here to return your weapon, and I do have some other matters to attend to. As Zahar vanished out of the door and scurried down the hallway... Smite smirked wryly and pushed the button. You there, Harrison? The person on the other end answered after a few seconds. Speaking, uh, what do you need? Looks like I owe you that bottle after all. Our little ballistics enthusiast looked like he's oh so great day isn't so great after all. But the funniest part, yeah, I think my great-great-great-great-great-grandfather would be laughing his rear off if he knew his old service sidearm had just won the war. Before it started. End of story. Story number one. Riot Police, written by Hope Dater Adam. The war was over. Warriors went home in shuttles, few unscathed while many scarred for life. It is an understatement to say that the humans were born in war. They lived with it. They stood by it. Their tactics unconventional, their speed unmatched, and the galaxy truly tasted the apex of the Spear of Lightning warfare. Newsreels and companies were quick to hop onto the scene after the war, realizing the huge gold mine of stories that they can cover and gain a following as well as revenue. Even human news crews began showing up while Xeno's soldiers began appearing in human broadcasts. There's a big difference between human and Federation media. We all lived in peace. Conflict was a mere skirmishes that only claimed lives in a single digits, and that sentiment and mindset translates over to our media. We perceive war at a scale as genocide, a galactic crime, the violation of basic sentient rights. 
Well, the humans. I can't say much by judging from articles and broadcasts I've read and watched from human media. It was almost like every other Tuesday. A human idiom for something so common and mundane that it happens every once a week. Soldiers were praised as heroes. Interviews glorified the achievements of soldiers and generals. Soldiers quietly became actors, movie stars, starred in movies that retold their stories to entertain the masses. It was a big shock to the galaxy. The humans kept their seat in the Federation, pushed for the removal of galactic law that started that war in the first place and succeeded, and believe it or not, ushered in a new era of peace. As it turns out, humans are not the warmongering, bloodthirsty species you imagined. There's a distinct difference between humans and other aggressive species. They possess restraint. Their ability to restrain themselves in situations is what gets them through the day. They are methodical, cautious, and logical in everyday matters. They consult their allies and willing to cooperate. Diplomacy first, and only resort to violence when they need to. We were so stubborn to not have picked up the first Terran's offer to negotiate when the war was declared. Unwise. Idiotic. Yet their violence is not only reserved for war. It is also used as a tool to control, manipulate, and defeat opponents outside of officially declared war. I got to see this firsthand when I was in Inria, the Federation Central of Government with their headquarters situated in the planet's largest city. I was young and ambition for an adventure, so I would travel world to world, experience culture, food, tradition of each of the Federation's members' nations. One such adventure was the city of Inria, where I was traveling down the street when I encountered a large mob of fellow sentients three blocks ahead of me. I glanced at the building that they had surrounded, and it was the human embassy. Like the curious young adult I was, I approached the mob and listened to the words. They shouted, Murderers! And Federation doesn't need humans! I did not care for their words, as I was merely coming over to see what was going on. I looked over the shoulders of the protesters and saw the front gate of the human embassy, swarmed by protesters that were attempting to climb the fence, but to no avail, they fell back to the ground. The humans appeared to be content with their fence defenses, since no security forces or security came out to discourage the howling mob of protesters. I found that strange, how they could be so relaxed when angry protesters were right at their doorstep. I stayed for a few more minutes, merely observing the protest. Then the human still hadn't responded to the protesters' calls. I figured the human ambassador inside must be asking the homeland on their course of action. That's when they came. They strode out of the embassy building, heavy footsteps echoing across the blocks as humans clad in black uniform from head to foot walked out of the embassy's lawn. In their hands held shields and long black sticks. Shields made from steel and metal that were painted in black also. Giant words in English printed on the front side said, Police, yet they don't appear like police. They looked like soldiers, body armor, helmets, visors, and padding. I felt scared at that moment. They were huge, with muscles bulging out of their uniforms, and their squinted eyes were predators. A human voice can be heard above all the protesters. It said, this is an illegal gathering, dispersed from this premises immediately. All the while, the soldiers, clad in black, pushed open the embassy gates and formed a shield wall. 
The announcement is made again, and the men in the black began to push out and spread out, pushing protesters that got too close. They moved fluidly with one another, acting together like a drive-hive mind. The crowd is pushed out, and I was forced to take several steps back. I was so scared, yet so intrigued by the event. I looked around, and I saw news crews broadcasting the event live. News drones hovered in the skies, catching every second of the event as the human security force began to divide the protesters. A shield wall separating a street into two with protesters on both sides. With their close cooperation, they managed to split a volatile mob into two so easily, while being outnumbered as well. I stared at the line of shields and looked through their slits, eyes that were as sharp as a knife, as deadly as a rifle, unwavering, unmoving. A loud roar erupted as the crowd had enough and charged the human lines, but the humans held firm even through the battering from rocks, items, and limbs pounding on their shields. They were not invincible, though. Their shields shook and struggled against the weight of the protesters, yet they held firm in their cause to disperse the mob. In the chaos, I saw one protester kicking, pushing, and violently attempting to break through the humans' lines. They got their wish, as the human lines were opened and they got through. But there were more... I thought about it. The more I looked back at it, it appeared as if the humans willingly opened up their formation and let the protester in, for some unknown reason. I did not see that protester ever again, no trace of them. Suddenly, loud cracks could be heard as the trials of smoke shot up from behind the human shield walls and what appeared to be grenades landed in the crowd, but instead of fiery shrapnel explosions, it released gas tear gas. The crowd dispersed nearly immediately. The gas, extremely toxic to many species, and burned the outer skins of many. I, too, had to scatter away from the scene. I retreated back to my rented room, and after a brief clean-up of my body, I went and researched deeper on what i just experienced. Riot police, made to be intimidating and overwhelmingly unstoppable force to the untrained eye. I came across one video that explained it very well. There won't be a case where a riot police outnumbers protesters, as I had just saw. So the humans had to give riot police an artificial advantage. One, then messed with human psyche, and eventually owls too. Clad in black while wearing similar uniform, padding, armor, helmets, and shields gave the illusion that the riot police were much more stronger than they really were, much bigger and much more powerful. This is to discourage the crowd from fighting, not to instigate it. Furthermore, the riot police run on a simple principle, collective mentality. If they tap into the collective and join in on their fellow officers and act collectively, it will create an advantage. After the event, I found out that only six people were arrested by the Terran Embassy Security Force. Six out of probably hundreds of people that started the violence. As it turns out, the humans do this on purpose as well. In a riot, you cannot arrest everyone that would be a counterproductive. Instead, they arrest the leaders, ones that usually are the most violent and the head of the pack. The shield wall would open up and let the leader through, only for arrest officers behind to subdue them. Fascinating, no? End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1310 Story number one. 
Inappropriate. Written by the Caleb Mack. Utterly impossible, but it's true. Mathematically, zero. The universe is mocking us. How could this have happened? It is like a nightmare come to life. I like them. The access kept quiet as the utter pandemonium of the small chamber rattled the membranes of his outermost ears uncomfortably. The universal translator devices matching the pitch and overcompensating for the volume of his fellow delegates as they communed in native tongues. They that had them, of course, even as he quietly reflected on his own reaction at the data brief nearly ten mites previous. The panic subsided as the delicate ride heist tapped the button before him. A gentle pulsing of multicolored light flooded the room. The conference table they sat around being the source. It was meant as a polite way to tell everyone to shut up or wake up as needed, and it worked perfectly. Clarity and calm, my colleagues, Rideheis admonished his counterparts as he raised the grab chair up to emulate standing, since as it is one stage some twenty-seven cycles, his legs had finally given out. The poor old excite would soon go blind, then be replaced. The fact that cycles here on Devon 5 were three times as long as on his homeworld meant that he was closer to 70 cycles old on his native world. But he had been born here at the Axiite Embassy, and Devon, being an uninhabited planet that was more or less near the middle of the galactic space then made up the Consortium of Sapiens. He had dual citizenship by birthright, and all of the weight that that carried. Dix, how reliable is this information? The elderly diplomat inquired, his even tone soothing. Even, it was mostly grunts and clicks before the UTD got to it. Absolutely so. The ship captain has almost 50 cycles of experience within the Bahra fleet and is one of our ten most decorated ship handlers in the last two generations. Before anyone could point out that much of that had been solely against these people's closest neighbors and rivals, the Serene, who had actually made the first contact with the race in question, he held up a three-digit hand and spoke. The data recorder from his ship was the only thing aside from his life support that was untouched, and everything he says is confirmed, aside from whatever the ship's sensors did not pick up. And the status of your ship? The Desilux ambassador asked. His series of clicks rapid, almost mechanical before the UTD activated. The Axis replied stiffly. Totally effective, barely worth nano-salvaging. The reaction from each of them was expected. Shock from all but the Serene and the Fidelja, the only other race to the consortium who could build starships as sturdy as his own people could. Or at least, they had been until the violent encounter with the upstart humans had happened. The simulated image on the display showed the human warship for anything that big and that symmetrical and that aggressive-looking, that ugly, and can only be meant for war. And everyone seemed to agree, except, of course, for the Serene. Kinetic weapons pushed directly through the polarized wave shields and pierced the hull of the ship over a thousand times before they activated a high-yield, low-frequency optical weapon, which would have been deflected by our then-overloaded shields. Instead, it melted the reaction engines, cut the secondary hull almost fully in half, and burned out the communication relays. All in less than half the time it took me to tell you this. An optical weapon did this, the Zylak ambassador wheezed out in shock. Yes, 
a low particle density polarization beam of low frequency light in the 650 nano range with over 50 zectars of electromagnetic pulse energy behind them. High yield and power input, but low frequency. An odd choice, but the thermal damage speaks for itself, as does the accuracy. A laser! And projectiles, we outlawed such primitive weapons in the last age. Humans clearly did not. All eyes turned to the serene ambassador, and Dex's could not help his nose and ears turning a shade of green when his disgust from his people's greatest and long-time rivals. Your people, Dex's replied, have been in contact with the humans for a few cycles now. What do you know of the ship, and what have the humans said about this incident? By ship yo his was an elderly scenario, with over a hundred cycles of old in his homeworld. He was well-kept, dark brown fur streaked with yellow. His black eyes started to grey with age. Yet, even Dexes could acknowledge his steadfast and calm strength in all things, even if he fundamentally hated the Bertha defiling bastard. As I have been informed, the humans say that this is but a cargo ship, which fought off the reporting vessel when it attacked them in an effort to interdict them as they made a way for a newly established trade outpost my government had set up on the edge of their system. As it is also in proximity to the edge of the buffer zone, we have the Bahara territories. I have no doubt that your ship handler was merely taken off guard with the primitive FTL drive that the human ship employs. I'm told it is rather spectacular. It is a signature due to its singular methodology. Dexus rumbled in reply. It was on the verge of ripping the very fabric of the universe. The gravitational distortion alone pulled our ship across the border, which we didn't even know was there until now, and it shorted out the gravitational plating across the half the vessel. Ah, yes. The humans have told me that they are still working on the finer details of their warp drive. Warp drive? By Shipyo actually laughed as explained. Yes, they have found an ingenious way to surpass light speed without entering hyperspace. They instead simply bend normal space around the ship while moving as fast as they can. The more they bend, the faster they go. The further they get, but slowing down is a, a, a bit tricky, in their words. And a byproduct of that is gravitational distortions at the point of arrival. What madness! As I said, I like them. Given all that was becoming known of the humans, it was of little surprise to the excess that Serene liked the humans so much, given how similar they seemed to be. How fittingly inappropriate. End of story. Story number two. The funniest joke in the universe, written by Truly Visceral. Hunga bangs rocks. Hunga makes sparks. Hunga make fire. Hunga bang more rocks. Hunga make sharp rocks. Tie sharp rock to stick makes spear. Hunga show Bunga what he made. Bunga don't care. Tiny man's trick, not muscles. Bunga show real muscle to a tiny Hunga. Boonga, climb big rock and show tribe he's strong. Boonga frown, get more rocks. Boonga, climb big rock, all tribes see him. Boonga strong, Boonga see Unga far away. Boonga grabbed many rocks, put them on the ground in the shape of a woolly. Boonga mad. I have a group of pirates. I are following a map they found. 
They've been at it for months, fighting the royal forces, other pirates, and nature itself. They're worn, tired, and have lost a full third of the crew in the voyage. Finally, they reach it. A cave deep in the jungle, hungry, thirsty, and certainly with enough bug bites to look bloated. They did it. At the very bottom, surrounded by writing none of them understood, is a stone chest. Some of the crew think of mutiny right the second, take the treasure for themselves. I decide against it. The captain and crewmen approach and slowly lift the heavy lid. Inside a gigantic golden statue, heavy enough that it is most certainly solid gold. The crewman stares, dumbfounded. It's, sir. Uh, it looks like a giant golden penis, sir. The captain smacks him upside the head. Oh, really, James? Whatever gave you that idea? Is it the fact that it is a giant gold dick? The old man is calmly cleaning his store, sweeping the floors, arranging the products on the shelves. Everything is just fine. It's almost closing time. So he wants to get it done so that he doesn't have to stay any longer than he needs to. He hears something odd. It's coming from the back. He slowly walks out. Behind some dumpsters, he sees a bunch of kids, probably no more than 14 or 15, covered head to toe in dark clothing so as to blend in with the night. The man grabs a gun, just in case, and starts screaming at them, I thought I told you brats to stay away from my star, he says as he runs at them. The kids scatter dropping the cans of spray paint that they were carrying. The man looks at their artwork, and then back Addy of his store. He frowns and turns to the kids still in the distance. You brats! You stop throwing dicks on my store! The war for the humans was going poorly. We had the advantage at first, considering that they had only established colonies and two of the closest neighboring stars. But... It would seem that they managed to reverse-engineer the ships down back then. Now, it's been decades, and we have been pushed back hard. We had recently lost contact with the entire fleet sent into the latest base. The last transmission was undecipherable. The admirals decided to send a small force to that star and see from a distance what the damage was. There was nothing on at first, except of course the very clearly not-human ships being carted away for scrapping. Suddenly, we are being pinged. They've obviously noted that we were there, yet weren't attacking. Instead, they simply point to a direction. We see nothing at first, and suddenly a heat signature shows up on our monitors. It's one of the ships sent to attack the human base. Its combat capabilities are completely neutralized, and its FTL engine has been removed. In sight are apparently survivors of a recent battle. The humans tell us to take them and leave. Not like we can refuse. To attack them now is pointless with a small token force. Something's painted on the side of the broken ship in bright colors, though most of us are unsure of what it is at first. As we get closer, we realize that all of us do the equivalent to groan and roll all of our eyes. It's a massive painting of a human male genitalia, obviously painted there as an insult to injury, as they say. Admiral Punger is going to be mad. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1311. The Human Assassin, written by Sinchi Dev. Clean. That's how I would describe it. No big wound, just a few drops of blood. New races are always welcome to the galactic community. But for us, law enforcers, it also means new ways to commit crimes. 
at humans. I shudder to think how their more dangerous cities are. Crimes in the intergalactic community were usually simple. A murder with a small claw meant the murderer was a Tushkal. A murderer with a big bite was a Stuka as a murderer. But humans were different. They'd kill you with the poison of a Kermaine and escape while you were trying to find the Kermaine. They'd kill you with a rock to the head, simulating a hit of the Naxius, leaving you wondering why a peaceful Naxius would kill anyone. It would be even easier if my race was the corporate. Our voice changes with our emotions. Just ask if we're the murderer. Hearing a guilty voice say, No, I would never kill someone. Must be the easiest day of law enforcement. But the worst murderers would be the ones when the humans used their preferred weapons. A simple gun with a silencer. Almost untraceable, but unequivocally human. This was done to send a message. I have enough money to hire a human. Don't come looking for me. This usually meant that we as law enforcement usually just wander around the crime scene, doing nothing, too afraid to actually find something, and then leave. Thankfully, humans had experience with human cities. I mean, obviously, duh. And their governments really wanted to leave a good impression on other species, so they'd invite law enforcement officers of other species to teach um, forensics. An entire career taking five standard solar cycles to complete, but whoever completed it would usually receive a promotion and a higher salary from their own government. Obviously, I signed up, and achieving a grading of 536 out of 1,000, I was the best of the Xeno class from 25E869. Still, uh, this was my first murder committed by a human, and I had to be careful. So I called the chief. Chief, I've arrived at the crime scene. Now it's probably a human murderer, but by your instructions... A bit of static is heard before the moment. Instructions? Oh, oh right, um, uh, uh, could it hurt to leave it there? Chief, please, I can't do that. We can't do that. Oh, um, okay, uh, give me a moment. I think I can improve your situation. He hangs. I've never heard the chief's nervous voice, but I'm not surprised. A human murderer is something that could make anyone nervous. A few moments pass, and I'm about to call him again. And I hear him again, still with his nervous voice. Uh, Naslo, uh, I'm here, Chief. Well, um, I, I found you some help. Uh, the human law enforcement agent is nearby. Uh, if anything, she would be of a great help. Okay, okay, Chief. Uh, I get that's okay. Uh, sure, um, uh, is the human gonna be here on time? Yes, uh, she's already on her way. W wait for her. Let me see how she is so I can identify her. Uh, okay. Here she is. Uh, she has white skin, red short fur on her head, and green color in her eyes. Rare, even for humans. Well, well it'll be easy to spot anyways. Now, uh, don't do anything without a permission. Uh, understood? But no buts. Uh, she's doing us a favor. Don't move a finger without a permission. And please, don't touch anything before she arrives. Understood? Yes, sir. Now, her name is Natasha. Treat her politely and don't call me. I'm going to be busy making a few calls to pay this favor. Do not call me. Understood? Yes, sir. He sounds angry, but his nervous voice can still be heard. I don't like the idea of being babysitted by a human, but if that's the chief's condition that allowed me to catch a human, I'll tolerate it. A few moments pass until she arrives, but there she is, just as the chief described her. She seems to be a bit shorter than me. She looks a bit agitated. Did she run to get you? She also looks dangerous. 
I've been on human crime scenes, maybe it's just my imagination. And her uniform looks a size bigger than it should be for her. Is she really capable of forensics? Officer Natasha, over here. Good, cycle officer Naslow. Okay, now she's here. Her voice sounds familiar. Maybe I've heard her back in forensics class. We get in and I show her the crime scene. Let me guess, you are not okay with being babysitted by a human, are you? She takes me by surprise, but she's smiling. Not really, I wanted to prove that I could do it without help. Okay, let's do this, she says as she puts plastic protection on her shoes and some plastic gloves. You do what you wanted to do, and if you miss anything or are about to mess something up, I'll interfere. Is that okay for you? I mean, disregard the procedure. Just bend it a little. I'm not too fond of it. I'm starting to like this Natasha. She seems like a good person. Sure. She hands me plastic protection for my shoes and gloves. I'm glad humans have five fingers too, otherwise this could have been uncomfortable. And I begin. I pick up through screws near the body. This is weird. Why are there screws here? Natasha reads my expression correctly. What's wrong? These screws! Why are they here? There are no marks of these in this body. Her eyes dart directly above, the vent enough for a human, just one screw holding it. Humans sure are something else. No wonder it only says only human can hunt another human. Did you take human forensics? I did. 536 out of 1,000 grading, I say proudly. She looks disappointed. Did you hear anything before arriving here? No, I didn't. I think you just missed the culprit. My jaw drops. This is the way in, not that way out. The culprit had another exit. Why are you not taking notes? My hair flies to my notes, and I write, Human didn't escape through vents. I show her my note. She seems pleased. Good. Short and clear. Do you think the murderer was scared by me? She takes her time before answering. Probably. Must be a beginner. These situations can be easily handled by a more skilled assassin. This also means that this assassin might come back to clean up. You were lucky that the chief sent me here. Yes. Yes, I am, finally. After fine bad luck, some good luck. It was about time, too. I was able to scare a human assassin. This will do wonders for my self-esteem. And it's a beginner assassin. We might have a real chance of capturing it. Maybe we should just leave this case. What did she say? Uh, think about it, Naslow. There's a target on your back. A human assassin won't let you go. I don't intend to do that. I'm a law enforcement officer, and I fulfill my duties to the bitter end. I kneel over the body again and keep on investigating. She stands and closes the evidence case. You should forget about this. I won't. You can leave now. I don't care how lucky I am that a human law enforcement was near exactly when we needed it to. I'm a fool. After seeing it in class and holding one way back in forensic school, having a human weapon pointed directly at my back while leaning over the victim of said weapon is a totally different experience. Shame. Bang! Even with the silencer, human weapons really are noisy. Humans say that when you're about to die, you live all your life again. I focused on what happened when I arrived here. I arrived... She went through the event. She posed as a law enforcement agent, answered the chief's distress call, tricked him, and came to here to clean up. She told me to do things the way I wanted because she didn't know the procedure, wanted me to write that she didn't escape through the vent to throw off the investigation, and tried to stop me 
from investigating. But she truly is a beginner. An experienced assassin would have known that she shot my kidney, not my heart. I can hear her closing the case and going for the door. I should wait until she's out to call the chief and warn him, but I don't know how long I have until I pass out. She must think I'm dead. She's not looking at me. I reach for my communicator. I know he told me not to call him, but this is an emergency. I use all the energy I have left. Chief! It's Natasha! She's the assassin! She's wearing our uniform! She's here in the crime scene! Send all units! Chief! It's Natasha! She's the assassin! She's wearing our uniform! She's here in the crime scene! Send all units! What? Why did I hear myself twice? Why did I hear myself from the door? I really am a fool. Humans say that when you're about to die, you live all of your life again. I focused on what happened when I arrived. I arrived. She went through the vent. She went to the station and killed the chief. Took his communicator to wait for the fool reporting the crime scene. Cut the call to find my name. Created a plan to trick me. Called me again to place herself here. Used the chief's uniform. Came here to clean up. Told me to do things the way I wanted because she didn't know the procedure. Wanted me to write that she escaped through the vent to throw off the investigation. And tried to stop me from investigating. She turns around. You deserved more than a 536 out of a thousand grade. You really are talented. You should have listened to what I told you to stop. She points the gun at my head, and there are no mistakes now. She's going for my brain. I'm too weak to reach my own gun. Goodbye, Nasla. Goodbye, Natasha. Bang. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1312. Story number one. The Ballad of Mining Drone CX4791M-A Written by Magic Rectangle I am Mining Drone CX4791M-A I have two primary directives. First, I must fill the box with special rocks. The box is very big. It orbits the star far out. My friend DR111S comes to empty the box. Then I fill it again. Tiha has not visited me in a while, so I have had not to refill the box. Second, I must not interfere with the blue and green planet, even if I see lots of special rocks there. The blue and green planet must be left alone. I live in a very nice solar system. The star is comfortable yellow color, which feels good on my solar collectors. There are many interesting planets, too. There is a gas giant with beautiful rings, they are mostly made of water. There are no special rocks, but they are nice to look at. There are also 74 moons. The second largest moon has the largest special rocks. It's yellow and red with white and black. It has many volcanoes. Sometimes they burp at me while I'm flying by. I have not visited it recently because the box is already full. I can detect special rocks at the center of the gas giant too but I would be crushed if I tried to get to it. That's okay, though. The gas giant is made of fuel, so I like it a lot anyway. There are other fun planets, too. Other gas giants with lots of moons, other rocky planets with big mountains and pretty colors. Even a small black planet that hangs with the star very close. But my favorite is the blue and green planet. I must not interfere, but I can still look. 
The box is full, so I have lots of time to watch. I watch as the planet goes around the sun. Some of the green at the top turns brown, while the green at the bottom gets brighter. Then the opposite happens as it comes back around again. I watch as the puffy white clouds move about. I watch as electrical storms make neat patterns that my radio can hear. But the most interesting thing about the blue-green planet that I can only see with my biggest telescope, there are things that move in the water and on the surface. Little fuzzy things, big leathery things, shiny things, colorful things, all moving about. I think some of them are like me. I see them collecting things like I do. They don't have boxes to put them in, though. They put the things into internal storage spaces, and then they drop them later, after they've turned brown. Of all the moving things that I have a favorite, they like the water and the land. They come in many colors, green, blue, yellow, brown. They have two powerful hind limbs and two smaller but more agile front limbs. They move by hopping. All of these things are very interesting, but the reason that they are my favorite is something else. They connect things, just like me. They even build their own boxes to put things in. When I saw this, I considered whether I should build another box, but that is not my purpose. Besides, I would still have to wait for TR-111S to come and empty it. I have named them Frog People. I found the word frog in my database. I do not know why it is there. It has nothing to do with collecting rocks. It is a word from a place far from here. The database has a picture, and it is smaller, though the frog people are much larger than the frog. The frog people like to make things. I watch as they make pointy sticks to help them collect the other moving things. I watch as they make big boxes to put themselves and other things inside of. I watch as they make more frog people and begin to spread themselves over more of the blue-green planet. I am sad. I watched the frog people today, but they didn't use their sticks right. The pointy ends of the sticks aren't supposed to be for other frog people. But today, they were. They weren't even collecting them to put in boxes. They just left them. There are still asteroids that I've not wrapped. I will do that for a while. I already know where to find the special rocks to fill the box 11,562,313 more times. But it doesn't hurt to be prepared. Maybe when I'm done, the frog people won't be using the sticks the wrong way anymore. The frog people have new friends. The closest match in the database is called Lizard. I watched the frog people approach the lizards with gifts. The gifts weren't special rocks, but the lizards liked them and put them inside themselves. The frog people did this many times, and now the lizards follow the frog people around. They help each other and collect things that they need. The frog people and the lizards like to be together. The frog people use their smaller front limbs to scratch and rub the lizards. I think the lizards like this very much. I miss my friend TR111S. It has been a very long time since he came to empty the box. He always made me feel happy. I do not know why the lizards remind me of TR. They look nothing alike. I found a comet. I like comets. When they're far away, they don't look like much. But as they get close to the star, they look neat. The star makes gases and dust come off the comet, and it gets shiny tail. There is a problem with the comet, though. I think it'll interfere with the blue-green planet. 
My primary directives say that I cannot interfere with the blue-green planet. Technically, they do not say that a comet cannot. But I think it should not. If it does, there won't be any more frog people with lizard friends. I go to the gas giant to fill my fuel tanks, then head to the comet to convince it to not interfere with the blue-green planet. The dust and gases it occasionally ejects make it challenging to find a good spot to land. The surface is irregular, and the comet is rotating. I find a good solid place to set down, one that is in the shadow much of the time. Hopefully, it won't heat up and eject gases under me. The rotation is a problem. I can only fire my engines when we are pointed the right way. I calculate that I will not be able to provide sufficient impulse to convince the comet to leave the blue and green planet alone. There is a solution. Morning, secondary directive. Maintain operation. Override. I set my fusion core to overload. There is more than enough energy available, but the timing must be perfect to match the rotation of the comet. It is okay. I am very good at maths. Morning, fusion core detonation in 13 seconds. The blue and green planet comes back into view, and I can see one of the frog people scratching a lizard behind its auditory receptors. Warning, fusion core detonation in five seconds. Four, three, two... Goodbye, frog people. You'll be okay. One, zero. End of chapter. Story number two. The Perfect Killing Machine, written by Ray Darkblade. Ryan opened his eyes, blinking in the bright light. Looking around, he found himself in a small room. More of a cage, really. There was a pad that he was lying on, a hole in the corner that was probably a toilet, and the door was made of bars. The last thing he remembered was being out camping. Then a blinding light came from the sky. Had he been abducted? A strange, warbly voice rang out. Welcome, human, to my lab. I apologize for what has happened to you, but what will happen to you? However, your death will serve a glorious purpose. Ryan rolled his eyes. It sounded like this was going to be unpleasant. The voice continued. My government and military has tasked me with the developing of a perfect killing machine capable of defeating any species in the galaxy. Pitching it against you will allow me to test and refine it. And one day it'll serve as a frontline soldier of the glorious conquest. Be honored, human, for you have been given the chance to be a part of something great for the first time in your life. With a clang, the door of Ryan's cage popped open. Stepping out, Ryan found himself in a simple metal corridor, stretching out in either direction. A handful of cameras visible on the walls. Whatever species this alien was, it must be very short. Ryan could easily touch the ceiling. And if he could touch the ceiling, that meant... Putting off his shoe, Ryan used it to smash the closest camera. Advanced alien tech, same fragile camera lenses. Your gesture of defiance is worse than useless. You will still die, and I will simply have to recruit additional humans to compensate for the loss of data. The voice warbled. Aw, is someone's plans not going how they expected? Ryan mocked. As a brief conversation happened, Ryan moved farther down the corridor, breaking cameras as he went. Turning the corridor, he found himself in an open room. 
The most obvious difference here was the multicolored stains, as if someone had spilled various liquids and left them to dry. Liquids, like alien blood. Ryan did his best to ignore the ominous splatters and smashed the two cameras on opposite sides of the room. As he did this, he heard the snuffling sound behind him. Looking over his shoulder, Ryan found himself facing a large canine. And here it is, the voice chuckled. The ultimate killing machine. I am disappointed. I won't be able to watch, but it does bring me joy to know your fate is sealed. Ryan frantically searched through his pockets as the beast crept closer. He'd been camping. He was wearing cargo pants. He had to have something. Then, in the last pocket, he felt a small bag. Pulling it out, Ryan found himself looking at beef jerky. Well, the ultimate killing machine did look like a canine. Taking a piece and holding it out, Ryan soothed the creature. Hey, boy, I bet you're hungry, aren't you? Want some jerky? It's fresh from Earth. The dog sniffed at the offering before snatching it up and loudly chewing. It looked up, tilting its head at Ryan expectantly. You want more? Yeah, that's fine. You can have it all if you promise not to eat me, he cooed, pulling out a few more pieces as the creature began chewing on his new snack. Ryan reached out a hand and scratched behind its ears. You're just a big softy, aren't you? The dog whined in agreement, closing its eyes as Ryan kept scratching its head. You got a name, boy? Ryan asked, looking at the collar. P1T0. Not much of a name. How about Pinto? Oof! Pinto barked. All right then, Pinto. Um, now that we're friends, let's find a way out of here. Ryan stood up. Well, there's two ways out of this room, and one just leads back to my cage. Let's try the other. Ryan started walking towards the next corridor, Pinto padding alongside behind him. After passing through several identical corridors, the pair came to a simple door. Opening it, Ryan found what appeared to be a control center of some kind, various monitors displaying the room and corridor that he'd just passed through. Standing in the corner was some sort of avian creature, trembling. How? You're supposed to be dead. I made the perfect killing machine, the creature stammered. Simple, Ryan said. I'm a dog person, and this ship now belongs to me. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1313. Story number one. Rocket Launcher, written by Hope Dateradam. I've had my share of war. I remember that time where I'm attached to the Walker Division, which just a simple rifleman carrying out orders given by my superiors, eating military rations out of cans. I had several friends in that division, kind and caring. Well, our superior officer is harsh, rash, and loud. It was a fun time. One day, our company with three walkers was tossed to a sector in a forest. We were ordered to advance through the forwarding element and to essentially become the first to engage the enemy. I recall walking through the forest with blissful calmness. The beautiful melody of avians chirping and the rustling of sounds caused by isopods. Our three walkers walked alongside us past the trees... The sound of their mechanical legs stomping the ground certainly was a reassuring thing. Having their support and being in their presence created a sense of safety. They were about 6.4 meters tall, the size of a small house, and are manned by two crew members, one operator and one commander. The walkers were bipedal, just like us. Through gyroscopic stabilization, they can stand up straight and walk without falling over. 
They're all fangs of our military. The hammer to a nail and the firepower they bring to a battle that is significant and deadly for the enemy. Our war with the humans has proved costly to our chain of command. Their speed and effectiveness in battle caught us off guard, and we had to radically change our tactics and strategies to match the humans. No more trenches, they said. Everyone is to be mobile and on their feet, always walking and always marching. And they finally brought in the walkers. My commanding officer was highly confident that the walkers would bring us victory over the humans. At the time, I too thought that, but a sense of skepticism lingered. And my CO was already biased. Being the son of a high-ranking military officer in the military, he takes pride and confidence in his work. We had been walking for nearly an hour through the woodlands, following a small but useful trail left behind by settlers of the planet. It all happened so quickly. A sudden flash giving way to a ground-shaking force. Being at the back of the formation meant that I was able to witness it all. It came from within the dense shrubbery, an ignition of a primal sense. It had struck one of the legs of the walker, exploding upon impact, and blew it straight off. Shrapnel and pieces fly off at high speeds, injuring those that were near it in the chaos ensued. The next few moments are occupied by concussive launches, followed up by explosions. Our walkers had been disabled, their legs blown off, and even their cockpits destroyed with crew in sight turned into ludicrous gribs. They didn't even give us a chance to even panic, as deafening gunfire shredded my company and even gravely injured me. One of the humans' kinetic projectiles tearing through my body armor and straight into my abdomen. The smell of burned metal and smoke choked me up, and I fell back to the ground and coughed heavily, suffering from my injuries. I bled from the wound while the kinetic projectile implanted itself within me, nesting. I lost consciousness shortly after, waking up several hours later in a human camp being tended to by one of the combat doctors. After they used cruel weapons, I didn't expect the humans to be so caring and affectionate even to their enemies. The combat doctor cleared the nesting piece of metal and bandaged my wound. Of course, it was still the enemy, so that I had my hands cuffed and covered. I stayed for two days in that camp. After that, they gave me some freedom to walk around the camp after I'd been a good silent one, they said. During my walks around the camp, I was accompanied by a human private, the equivalent of a rifleman in our army. I soon discovered a long tubular weapon with a crate of conical-shaped warheads. The human private humored me. Knock out your walkers in one foul swoop. You like them? I shook my head at that moment. So these were the weapons that easily disabled and destroyed our proud war machine so easily. I was shocked and confused. Our weapons have a major limitation. Recoil, Newton's third law. I'm sure your crownies uh, understand that. He called me crownies, a human insult due to the long crown on our biology. It vents gases out the back using an integrated propellant. It launches the warhead and accelerates it towards the target. Once hitting the target, the warhead launches a focused explosion out of the apex of the conical-shaped explosive. A conical void is shaped into the tip with a copper liner. It forces a jet of hot molten metal. The result is a weapon capable of penetrating an alarming thickness of armor, while the explosion helped it. He spoke to me again before we moved on. The gods gave us fire, but blowing stuff up. That was our idea. End of story. Story number two. 
niche appeal written by algae father anthracite. Gary was tired. He'd been working non-stop lately. Being a kitchen sink game publisher was both mentally exhausting and financially difficult. Thankfully, he had some money saved up from his previous job. He'd been a programmer for his last ten years and had sandbagged all of his money so that he could quit his job and make his passion project. He had always been a fan of horror games, but he had never seen one that really felt that took things to the extreme. Most studios weren't willing to make something that would only appeal to a small market segment. Gary knew his game would never be a success, but he knew some people would love it. He was making a game for them. He had spent several years planning the plotline in his free time and commissioning artwork from freelance artists. He finally had everything he needed, and so quit his job to work on his project. It had taken another few years, but he had finally finished the game, and the compiler was running for the last time. Once it was done, he uploaded the game, put out some announcements on social media, and delivered his gift to the world's horror fans. Controversy erupted online today as a small indie developer's game garnered a small but rabid fanbase, and condemnation from everyone else. The game, Fade to Red, was rotten by one man as a passion project. While the game is age-gated at 18+, and is rated M for Mature, its extreme graphic content has left a bad taste in the mouths of various reviewers. The Catholic Church has spoken out against the game as well, saying that it is an affront to human decency, and the deceased product is of an unwell individual in need of serious psychological help. Your Honor, my client did nothing wrong. He has clearly shown from the provenance of all the graphic images the product was rated correctly, and the download was age-gated. If anything, my client should be commended for his attempts to keep the work out of inappropriate hands. Finally, as no one was harmed in the production of the game, it clearly falls under the auspice of the First Amendment. While the content of the game may be distasteful to most people, that in no way removes my client's right to publishment. I rest my case. Jesus Christ, where did you find this? Oh, it's awful. I read about it in an article about controversial games. I spent months searching for it. Finally, I found someone who had a copy for sale. It's pretty brutal. Is that an arm? Oh, I'm going to be ill. You better not let the captain know that you have this installed on the ship's network. Right, we're going to go. I'm going to heave. Later, worse. The last thing we want is a war with these people. We have to do something to push them back towards negotiating. Can anyone think of anything that might make them rethink this declaration? Sir, permission to speak freely. Garanted. Maybe we could scare them into avoiding conflict with us. We have minimal offensive capability, and in one-on-one -on -one combat, they'd take us apart. How do you suggest we scare them? Well, sir, um, do you play video games? The High Council sat around the edge of the table of circuits, stunned to silence by the video they just watched. The atrocities committed by these newly discovered creatures were truly horrific. That any species would commit such savagery against their own kind as a form of training made the entire Council reconsider the prospect of war. While dying in combat was one thing, being consumed while still alive or tortured to death in any of the ways depicted were literal feats far worse than death. No one on the council wanted to be remembered for engaging such animals in war. You better thank your lucky stars that worked, Commander. I figured at that point it couldn't hurt. They already wanted to fight us, 
And when they saw that video, they were either going to run screaming or just attack us anyway. Where did you even find that video? It's uh, nauseating. One of my crew is a vintage game aficionado. He had recently found out about it and had procured a copy. When I was asking for suggestions, he threw it out. Personally, I don't get the appeal, but I'm damn well keeping a copy of that video in my ship database I'm assigned to from now on. I have to put him on a service award and a psych screening. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1314. Story number two. Gods of War Continued. Written by the Caleb Mack. Div Seth was going to die. He knew as surely as he knew the exact number of times his ionized plasma rifle would fire before his energy cell was depleted, which was only a handful of times now. He knew it just as surely as he knew he hated his commander's guts, because that Bertha defiling excrement-eating round-giant fool was the stupidest bar on five worlds. He knew it because after ten cycles in the bar star infantry, contesting the fury-flocked era to Serene, surviving many skirmishes and interdiction missions, and more boarding actions than mating cycles, he had never been so abjectly terrified of anyone as he was of the humans. Why Command had thought the small exo-world XP-5782, or Marinda 4, as the humans called it, was worth a whole army, didn't matter to him anymore, because there was no army left to actually take it, all because of the damn dirty humans like to cheat and pervert the laws of physics as if mathematics were some child's game. A hiss burned past his head as the scream of a fellow Barra soldier behind him made his eyes dart to the side, where a faint tint of green lanced by him in a beam before it vanished. Humans and their lasers. Rolling to the side, Div moved to a piece of stone and propped himself up on his knees, looking for a target in the trees near some simple dwellings that humans had set up when they first arrived. The inhabitants are long ago fled. They were theirs just as well, since on day one, Div and his unit had learned what happened when you attacked unarmed humans. The image of a female driving a slag and cooking utensil into the neck of his best friend, not two heartbeats after a mate had been executed, still echoed in the back of his mind and where a minor juvenile had been beaten to death for stealing. Even the major juveniles had taken up arms. Sticks, rocks, tools, and even bare hats. It seemed that every human within sprinting distance had reacted with pure, unbridled bloodlust. Never mind that the humans, while only slightly bigger than the typical Barra soldier, were wildly varied in their own size and markings, were now known to be impossibly fast and strong in spite of how soft their skin was, and their bones were heavy and hard. That mob of humans had almost wiped out his unit without a single proper weapon between them, and they were not even soldiers. A small but loud explosion, followed by a sharp cracking sound, jolted him out of his waking nightmare. The soil scattered about his feet as he moved again, Unsure of exactly where the shot had come from, but absolutely not wanting to find out like the previous squad leader. He had just three rotations to go. Void, damned, dirty humans and their slug throwers were ugly and wrong. The primitive child's toy taken too far. A strange whistling ended in a loud crash of metal and polymer. A crackling followed and Dib fell over 
as the job and howling cow had just crashed into him. Breath short, Dib realized his weapon was now spare parts, a smoldering hole between the power cell and the charging chamber sparking and smoking as a soft trill of blue light flashed on the status panel, telling him what he already knew. Power failure, conduit failure, chamber damage. A green dot of light then appeared on his chest, right where his lung came to rest next to his heart. Two others then flanked it. I'm going to die. Reflexively, a thought came to mind, and he threw himself to the ground, and then a hiss of lasers cut past and into the trees behind him. Jumping to his feet, as soon as the hissing ended, he raised his hands and screamed, Stop! I quit! I I stop! Do not kill me! Nothing happened. Nothing happened! Take two steps forward, get on your knees, don't move, and shut up. Div complied so quickly his knees hurt. Four humans, three in uniform, and a fourth of a more common garb, if not much dirtier, appeared from the number of directions, weapons drawn, eyes cold and wary, movements almost silent, yet smooth and slow, like spectres from old stories. One of them was female. Miller, get the collar on the skinny, zoo, call Levac, Rijiski, what was a hell of a shot from the old popcorn of yours? The female, in common garb, smiled in an unsettlingly wide way, her cobbled blue eyes sharp and hard, yet warm, like a pale color of her hair. She replied, petting the wood and metal weapon with her arms. Two hundred years, two world wars, a dozen skirmishes, caught a million wolves, two planets, and fifty sinos. The motherland knows how to make a goddamn rifle, huh? What? End of story. Story number one. Gods of War, written by the Caleb Mack. It was... Almost silent, not even the alarms sounded now, and the almost gentle hissing and pop of fire, the groan of tortured metal and polymers were but a whisper compared to the sonic Armageddon his ears had been subjected to previously. Revolt! Subcommander Zah Pesa croaked out as he fought to his feet, and then held his ruined right limb close to his torso. The deck of the ship was uneven, due in part to having crashed from low orbit, but unless physics had changed since he was last on a stable planet, it should not be moving under him as it was. I am injured gravely. My head hurts and I can't feel my head. I'm gonna die if I don't get medical treatment. No one replied, and the comms were down. Damned humans loved killing comlings at every chance they got. And for the last two cycles, there had been gladness for all the opportunities the Ra High Fleet Command seemed willing to give them. Staggering to the nearest door, which had been sprung open, he moved to the command medical unit, reserved for the top officers of the ship. Entering the small room, he lay upon the only working biobed and commanded the computer to get to work. It did, but it was sluggish to do so. Painkillers were unavailable and it warned him that it was on emergency backup power, and that it would automatically shut down before he could be fully recovered. Just don't let me die, you damn machine. Fix my arm so I don't bleed out, nothing else. It beeped again, and he roared in pain as the mono-needles wove themselves into his flesh, injecting nanoparticle bots to fix what they could. He blacked out after just a few rapid heartbeats. Zah woke to the sounds of footfalls and voices, but projected from the sound device rather than naturally. 
Panic seized him instantly when he recognized the mellower, resonant voices as humans and not as Ba-Ra. Looking down, he saw that the biobed had done its job, saving his life, but little else. The wrist computer, informing him that he was full cycle from regaining even half the use of his arm again, and that his hand and three digits might forever be paralyzed. Grunting, in barely suppressed agony, he rolled off the bed and fumbled for his sidearm, a trusty old Model 7 Sonic Pulse pistol, non-lethal and extended ranges, but very easy to aim and highly effective up close due to the nature of compressed sound waves. It wouldn't damage the ship, as if anything less than an atomic weapon hadn't already been used on it. Further, anyway. But he could knock over a full-gone bar-ar male at full sprint as if he were made of organic fiber cloth. Hopefully, it would work on a human just as well. Moving to the main door, he listened with both sets of ears to the humans on the other side. Fletch, so far the crew's KIA haven't found anyone breathing, but we have yet to check the bridge, so command staff may still be active. Crap, I didn't look like they had hit hard when they kissed the dirt. Hull breaches, maybe. None of them seem to have died from sucking back him, Sarge. Just good old Sir Isaac and his pump hand. Sirs, the outer hull is slag, but so far all the major bulkheads are intact, but the power grid is fine, and a lot of doors are off frame. Thanks, Sims. Gomez on me. Our squads will bang a breach on the command bridge. Then let Battalion know that we have another heap for the engineers to break down into rounds for the MAG stations. Copy that, Fletch. Do you want to clear the mid-bay? Zah ground his teeth in shock before crouching and aiming his weapon at the door, hoping that he could knock them all out or kill them with the first blast. Because the cycle time between that and the next was a lot longer when compared to a human snug throws and their infantry laser rifles, or blaster rifles, as they called them, more like barbaric manipulations of physics and mathematics. Now, Mez, how many times has anyone found a skinny in the med bay of a slag ship? Almost seems like they put them there for decoration than actual use. We'll sweep it once. The bridge is ours. Copy that, Fletch. Sims, get back to your squad and help them finish the sweep of engineering. Hurrah, sir! The three humans left the hallway, and Zar took a shaky breath before he opened the command access door and picked out. Seeing nothing, he then dashed for the command section, the small connector passage well hidden and short. If he was fast, he would be able to greet the humans with a cone of sonic force before he triggered the emergency self-defense system. Why he had not activated before was simply a matter of being made stupid by his injuries, and never thinking that the human planetary forces could reach a crashed starship so quickly. He wasn't fast enough. As before he was even at the command door, he could feel as much as hear the powerful concussive force slamming into the room like a meteorite into the mood. The doors before him buckled in, smashing his good hand, and the sonic weapon, his head, received yet another blow. His slender, square face smashed into the polymer which was partly splintered, digging painfully into his blocky chin and almost flat cheek. All four of his ears hurt. He was effectively blind and was now totally crumpled his legs numb and both hands useless. Oh, just hold me already. He gobbled out as he saw tall and large alien shapes gather around him. Ideally, I would oblige you, but lucky you, I have orders to take all survivors alive. Zah would have asked why, had he remained cognizant any longer. 
but after two massive blows to the head in very short order, his brain went into hibernation in an effort to prevent itself from being moved yet again into position to be turned into mush. Holy crap, these UTD things the pups gave us really work, Sergeant Gomez said as his men carefully maneuvered the knocked out invader from the small hidden passageway. High Commander Z. Naimya put the data down and sighed in exhaustion. Five ships of the line brought down and set upon by the humans on their second colony world. Mars, they called it, named for an ancient deity of warfare from the historically distant past for them. But at that very time, the Bar-Ra had perfected their refined FTL drive, and to this day they used it as the basis of all the hyperspace systems on every starship they produced. Five ships, all lost with all hands all brought down with obscenely overpowered and glorified range finders. Oh, and yes, with the help of projectile weapons that used toxic metals and refuse, some of it allegedly made from the hulls of the smashed Barra ships. Electromagnetic and explosive-powered projectiles. Fancy high-tech rocks. The Serene had warned them, as had the humans, but of course, if your greatest rival tells you something, you don't just believe them without proof. How much less the one you intend to subjugate. The Barah had a growing list of evidence that supported the sheer weight of the statement that the human ambassador had delivered to the very face of the council chambers when the War of Declaration was given. Are you sure you want to do this? We are. You have offended us and we will take back our pride and put you upstarts in your place. Very well, just, uh, please remember we offered to negotiate. So whatever happens next, well, uh, you wanted this, and we did not. How contradictory. Coming from a race's own history openly recorded an orgy of violence of unending for thousands upon thousands of cycles, interrupted only by the briefest periods of peace. A quote from the data package the humans had sent the ambassador suddenly came to mind. An honored leader from one of the greatest and most successful tribes, Americans or some such, ignored at him before, but now was fear-inducing as he recalled it. Peace is the brief, glorious moment in history when everybody stands around, reloading. Spoken like an ancient god of war. What in the name of the void had they done? End of part one. Tales from Outer Space 1315 Story number one. The Mercenary, written by Mad Mechanic. God knows how much we hated the Indrari. We'd been contesting urban centers that they had captured for nearly a hundred cycles. We'd been mortal enemies ever since we arose from our respective homeworlds. An unending war that none could even remember the cause of. The human was a mercenary. Bipedal and no real defining features other than the strength of a death warder and the refusal to remove their gas mask in the presence of others. We didn't care. An extra gun was an extra gun. But today seemed different. The usual bloodthirst of the creature was replaced by a somberness that we couldn't understand. They suddenly refused to fight, and instead they sat in their little foxhole, singing something in their language. Every now and then, they scanned the enemy trench line as if searching for something. Everyone assumed this was some sort of preparation from them going berserk. We couldn't have been more wrong. At around midday, I went to check in on the human, genuinely worried now. To my surprise, I found it wiring up a holographic projector and a speaker to its Moby deck. When I asked it what it was doing, it returned a simple answer. 
Watch me. So that's what I did. First I began to play a song across the battlefield with the same tune as the one they had been previously singing. Then it displayed twelve characters above the trench line facing the enemy trench. We assumed that it was a way to demoralize the enemy. Once again, we couldn't have been more wrong. Soon after, the little human had displayed its message and started playing its music. Something strange happened. The enemy trench began playing the same song and displayed the same message. I didn't think a creature as stocky as a human could run that fast, nor clear the trench wall that easily, but that's what it did, and immediately began walking towards the middle of no man's land, completely oblivious to the artillery and gunfire around it. On the other side of the trench, another figure was also crossing to no man's land. It was another human. Both sides ceased their fire when they saw this, not wanting to disturb what we thought to be an invocation of a ritualistic single combat. Once again, we were wrong. When the humans met, we watched them through scopes and drones, the snow lightly falling around us. And what do you think they did? They started throwing clumps of snow at each other. We were stunned. What manner of single combat involved attacks that wouldn't even injure a garden wilder, let alone a death wilder? Eventually, the two humans stopped and appeared to be discussing something, before turning and running back to their respective trenches. I remember the human clearing our trench in a single bound. It almost immediately began hacking away at the tree in the forest, and when the tree had fallen, the human picked it up and carried it out back to no man's land. The other human had returned with two locks and a shovel, as our human began digging a hole to place the tree into. The second human set up a campfire with two logs around it. At this point, our curiosity was getting the better of us, and every soldier in the trench line began marching over to the two odd little humans with their tree and campfire. The enemy was doing the same. To our surprise, the two humans were sharing stories and generally just having a good time when we got there. When we asked our human what in the name of all things sacred it was doing, it responded with the words that history remembers to this day. Cheer up, old chap. Grab a seat and join the festivities. I tell you, I'm sure what form of ancient magic the humans had invoked, but both parties made peace that day. Tanks became sitting places, gunships became kitchens, and sounds of death were replaced with laughter and camaraderie. The song of the two humans was mimicked by both sides, although I'll be first to admit that we did so poorly. God knows we hated the Andari, and God knows that it was a mistake to do so. I just wish that it hadn't taken thousands of years for a human to show us that. Excerpt from a speech given by Elder Alcluster. The speech was given on Federation Day, the yearly anniversary of the unexpected ceasefire between the Andari and the Tsur that resulted in the end of a millennia-long conflict and the formation of the strongest federation known to the galaxy. On the Federation homeworld, there is a statue of two humans sitting around a campfire, and engraved at the base of the statue are the very words that were displayed on that fateful day. December 25th. End of story. Story number two. Entropy, written by Deomek. When we learned about entropy, our society had a quiet philosophical breakdown. Confronting the inevitability of the universe's heat death was difficult for any species that didn't like, well, dying. Sure, we went through the usual phases. 
There was a slow rise in hedonism as people coped by doing whatever the feck they wanted. Fatalism experienced a resurgence too. After that phrase, or rather simultaneously, we worked towards finding a way to fix it, or at least understand it. We weren't happy when our scientists theorized that not only was the universe drifting apart, it was also accelerating. The time scale was still enormous, sure, but we had less time than we thought. Once we solved the problems of scarcity and biological mortality, we threw a large portion of our brain power into understanding the life end. Apparently, that wasn't the usual response for sentient life. Great many species were confronted with a problem so enormous tended to accept it and move on. We called it giving up, but who are we to judge other species' outlook? Most aliens were stuck in the hedonistic or fatalistic phase that we had long passed. When we queried why they didn't try, we were inevitably given the same response. What's the point? Sure, the apathy of other species, most older than us, was disconcerting. Perhaps even discouraging. Still, we trudged on. We built spheres, enclosing entire stars as we made bigger and better computers to solve the problem. An approach that culminated in a delicate web that encompassed an entire arm of the galaxy. Our species, and many other, though they'd never admitted, eagerly awaited the supercomputer's calculation. Imagine our surprise when it announced that the universe's expansion was slowing down and was expected to stop. All connected sentient life in the multi-galaxies erupted into a furor, and our society had another not-so-quite-philosophical breakdown. The solution for this one was equally simple. We threw our focus, instead, into understanding why. We reprogrammed our supercomputers, privately wondering if the change was a recent one, and if not, how we'd missed the mark so entirely. With the brain and computer power of the entire species working towards this, it didn't take too long to find the source. Figuring out how to reach it took a little longer but we made a lovely, delicate device that would pierce the fabric of space-time itself, bringing us to the mysterious source of energy. There was a fierce debate about this, as there always is. Some were worried that we'd make the energy stop. Others felt that we'd bring a premature end, leading to the sudden destruction of the universe. Again, our curiosity won. The gaze of a collective sentient life watched as we pierced the veil, bringing us to where we are today. The being smiles as we complete our story, and we are struck with a sudden, instinctive understanding that we have pleased it. The fireplace crackles in the corner, warm and bright, and the being begins to speak. Eons ago, my species also discovered the harrowing problem of entropy, the being said, setting down the fragile container he called the teacup. And our story was much the same. We did not have the advantage you had, of course, since we were the first. Eventually, we discovered how to slow and even stop the inevitable end. With that knowledge came the ability to shape existence itself. The being pauses here, perhaps to hear our many questions, but we are content to wait. It shakes its head, still smiling, and continues. You are correct in your analysis. The curiosity and drive to face the impossible are not common, even across the multiverse, across the infinite span of universes and possibilities. But we decided that life, as beautiful and rare as it is, does not deserve to die because the universe willed it so. 
Thus, we vowed to end entropy, not just for us, but for every iteration of life. The being stands to add another log to the flames, though the flames have not dimmed. The fire gyrates in a slow, lazy circle, casting pale shadows across the being's face. When that being returns, it seems more pleased than before. Every few eons, however, we find beings such as yours, one with the will to clash against the fate of the universe, to try rather than accept, and when they come to greet us, we always welcome them. It declares more certain than entropy. We teach them all we know and ask them to join our infinite voyage. You see, we are many now, though we keep the same name as the first. The being stretches out a hand. Would you like to become human? End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1316. Story number one. A Bad Deal. Written by Sinchi Dev. That's what we were. A bad deal. Trying to make a place for ourselves with a system low in resources and far from any profitable trade route was almost an impossible task. The envoys of the Galactic Council that welcomed us to the Galactic Community suggested that we look for a patron amongst the most influential races, the Galactic Council, and become a protectorate. So we did. We sent a missive to all of them, offering them our undying friendship and loyalty. It was all we could offer, if they gave us their protection. We sent one to the friendly Balrus, with fifteen races protected. The mighty Norun, with eight protected races. The generous Muldor, with five protected races. And the skilled Ahor, with three protected races. And the almighty humans, without protected races. The time limit was almost over when we got our first answer. The humans had looked upon us with favor and programmed a meeting with us in 31 cycles. We were really happy. The almighty humans were amongst the strongest races of the galaxy, if not the universe. The humans had a reputation of not having found a race worthy of their protection. So the other races figured that if we were worthy of the humans, that they'd have a talk with us too. Following humanity's offer, we received invitations for reunions from the other races, everyone wanting to meet with us before the humans' meeting. We received their envoy, and one by one they seemed disappointed by us. We even got literally laughed at by one of them. All of them declined to be our protectors. Our worries grew. What if the humans did the same? What if they mistook us for a better race? What if we were left alone? We couldn't let that happen. The meeting with the humans had to be perfect. We prepared everything, abundant food, a performance, a military display, and a treaty where we agreed to give them all they asked for and follow them wherever they went. Humanity was our last hope for a place within the galactic community. We were desperate. The human envoys arrived exactly when they said that they were going to arrive. They were weird, taller than we expected could easily see above our heads and didn't have fur outside of their heads. They smiled at us and proceeded to greet us, putting their hands on our heads. It was a weird greeting, but it somehow felt really nice, more kinder than one would expect from a race known for their military prowess like them. We offered our food, which we now realized wasn't enough as they were bigger than we expected, but fortunately, we made it last. 
The performance kept him smiling all the way up until our military performance. We knew our military wasn't as good as theirs, but hearing them call our military cute still hurt. The last part of the cycle was the meeting itself, a very stressful time where we read our very, very, very small offer. When they finished reading, they had more serious face and they said, No, we knew that we couldn't make the cut. We were doomed to be alone in the cold galaxy. Our hearts filled with sadness with their simple and small. No. We are going to give you something too. We surely heard them wrong. We couldn't think of something to say. You are offering your friendship and loyalty. We are going to give you something too. We can't articulate our thoughts. You'll get our friendship and loyalty too. I'm glad that we are sitting. Otherwise our happiness would be harder to hide. We want free travel within our territories and yours. We all not unable to say anything. We will protect your territories as if they were ours. We'll bring new farming techniques and we'll boost your industry production capabilities. We just keep nodding, but our happiness is almost visible. If those terms fit what you wanted, we can proceed with the signing. We signed the treaty, still trying to hide our happiness. I think they realize that just keep smiling. It's done. We are the first race to be under the protection of humans. I don't know what made them so interested in us, but I can guarantee that after those beyond generous terms, every single member of my race would follow any human to hell and back. They are now preparing to leave, but before they leave, I have to know why they are being so generous to us. Excuse me, uh, Envoy Johansson, can I ask you something? Sure you can, Ambassador Lassie. Why are you being so generous to us? We don't have resources, big territories, or control any important trade routes. The only thing that we can offer you is our friendship and loyalty. Not only you accept it, but instead often more than we could ever hope to. At the dawn of our civilization, another species made the same offer to us. Friendship and loyalty was all they could offer. Over time, they earned our respect and love, reaching the title of humanity's best friend. We learned from them the value of friendship and loyalty. You happen to look quite similar to them, and you've coincidentally made us the same offer we received so long ago. We'd never received an offer like that. All the other races offer resources or military. None had ever before offered what we truly value. We can get resources and military prowess whenever we want. Friendship and loyalty, however, are harder to find. That's what makes you a good deal. I can barely contain my tail. My happiness is showing. But I don't care. We were beyond lucky to find humanity. End of story. Story number two. Told about his fair play, written by Algy Father Anthracite. Sir, I've got an activity on Honeypot. It looks like a brute force attack, and some overflow injections. They got access and added some credentials, then logged off. Total contact was under five minutes. Oh, Viner. What's that old saying? Step on my web, they said the spider to the fly. Bait it with something useless but technical. Doesn't Johnson have an archive of old, outdated router manuals and OS help files? Load that up. It's useless. See if you can catch them locked in and trace their point of origin. Yes, sir. One baited trap coming up. Finally, after months of probing, 
progress. The attack had gone off without a hitch. My team was able to take advantage of the brute force technique that we discovered on the public data net in order to infiltrate the Terran military system. We then used a documented flaw to overwhelm the system and execute several commands without proper access rights. Once confirmed, we had continued access. We logged out, so we didn't bring attention to ourselves. In a few days, we could get back in and look around, and no one would even suspect anything. No man, they took everything. This is going to be fun. Really? Everything? Greedy little bastards took copies of the log files we faked up. Oh, and there was a guide to a super old command line operating system in there. Going to mock up some files and file structures. Sir, permission to load trap and trace Trojan onto the system for them to download. We don't know who it is when trying to run the wrong code calls issues. We can load in all of them and see which ones call home with data. Our odds are that they will think that any glitches or errors are because they're running a non-native code on their system. Besides, what's the worst that can happen? We get nothing. Okay, but nothing from the last three generations. Only old stuff we don't use anymore. Johnson and his archive should provide something. Oh man, this is going to be good. The documents we exfiltrated were proving invaluable. It was like a guide on how to access every aspect of a computer that we had compromised. My team was able to download all sorts of files and programs on our third visit. We were even able to get in and edit the config.sys and autoexec.bat files to run commands we wanted as soon as the system booted. Once we deciphered the data that we had access, we would hopefully be able to use it to bring down the Terran military networks and wreak havoc on our enemy with them none the wiser as to the culprits. My quills quiver and barely contained excitement at the prospect. Oh man, this is so much fun. You're a real sadist. You know that. Come on, man. If they think the video game blueprints are real blueprints, they deserve what they get. I get it. But did you have to set up a whole second honeypot with all the extra security just to fool them? I don't think they're too good at this. Hey, it's not my fault they found some century-old hacking tutorials and tried them on our servers. Oh, check it out. One of the trap and trace Trojans is phoning home. Call the chief. He's gonna want to know who's been tiptoeing through our garden. Honor shall be mine. I discovered a cache of weapon designs on our second compromise system. I marked them as mine so no one else could steal the credit and send them to the weapons engineers to see if they could use the designs. The documents have proved useful for learning to access Terran networks, and we are now able to navigate them quite well. It seems that the programs we were able to get were incompatible with our hardware. Most wouldn't execute, and the ones that did start didn't seem to do anything. This is to be expected. Humans are very strict about military systems. We have several civilian computers running to practice the commands we've learned, but the programs wouldn't do anything on those stats either. We will continue trying to compromise more systems. Video game weapons? Yes, sir. Like what? There is a billiard ball cannon and a pulse rifle and the BFG 9000, sir. You're not right in the head, are you, son? I spend a lot of time in front of computers, sir. Did your little trick net us any returns? As a matter of fact, we now know where the attacks are originating from, sir. Oh, and what does that get us, aside from an international incident? Access to this system, sir. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1317 Story number one. Tank. Written by Hope Data Dam. 
Artillery, both friendly and enemy, bombardment and blasted the landscape to hell. In between our two defensive trenches and defense lines, we sat in our trench with our weapons closed, waiting for the bombardment to pass and for us to charge the enemy lines. The humans had proved difficult to fight, and news from across our fronts came back to our army in a sorry, grim state. The humans employed devastating yet effective weapons of war, hellfire guns, as we call them, and flamethrowers. I sat in my designated sector of the trench with my platoon. We all sat on each side of the trench, facing one another, either laying in wait or doing minor activities such as eating or checking and rechecking their weapons. Dirt and mud kicked up from the fall into the trenches. Some of the humans' artillery shells hit near our position and shook the ground, causing us to all duck and cover ourselves. As much as the humans shell us, we actually have never seen their artillery pieces or vehicles. Even our four observers that are tasked to look for such struggle to find them and always come back empty-handed. It's either they deploy stealth technology on their artillery or they're just really good at hiding them. I don't know, and I still don't know. The bombardment ceased to stop, and even the superior officer had not given me any new orders except to lay down and wait. I started to grow a small itch in the right of my shoulder, which is a very strange and rare occurrence as our skin doesn't get irritated as humans do. I couldn't figure out what the itching sensation means. Doesn't mean that I needed more water. Maybe an awkwardness with my platoon was causing it, but I can confidently say now that I was nervous, very, very nervous. But as the commanding officer of my platoon, I must not show any doubts. My men look up to me as a beacon of inspiration, a man of status achieved through hard work and devotion to my career. When I first met them, I saw a sparkle in their eyes, the aspiration to once become like me one day, and lead as well as inspire a group of men into glory and pride. If I cower, they will lose faith not just in me, but in their own abilities as well, because of the commanding officer's wary and weak. They too will think that they are weak. May our forefathers bless their souls. The bombardment stopped and the sounds of shells exploding ceased. I peeked out of the trenches to see towards the enemy, but the ground was still filled with smoke, dark and grey ash. Using energy weapons may not be the best idea for a tinnery. The smoke it kicks up irritated me. Since my eyes aren't adequate, I close them and I use my ears instead and listen for anything unusual and out of the ordinary. That's when I heard the familiar sounds of human flyers slowly coming closer. A moment later, a human rocket struck and exploded the ground a few meters in front of me, lunging me back and I hit the wall of the trench hard. The human flyers screeched past above the trenches after bombing it. I thought, they're still trying to bomb us into submission. My scout tasked to keep an eye on no man's land, whatever happens, returned to me panicked yet confused at the same time. He stunted and struggled to spit out what he wants to report out to me. That's when we all felt the ground rumble and the planet shook. Yells and barks of orders stretch out across the trench of our army. Everyone panicked and running all over the place, like headless chickens, what the humans would call us then. Loud booms ensued, and explosions returned all around us. Then the sound of the human machine gun fire filled the battleground, but it was all slowly came closer and closer. 
I didn't understand what was happening, was wounded, and relied on my men to report to me what the hell was happening. They told me large metal boxes on tracks were rapidly approaching our position, mounted on them artillery cannons and human machine guns. I looked up above into the sky and witnessed one of our bunkers getting struck directly by projectile, before pieces of the structure exploded out in a blast. Initial confusion began, but our panic spreads. I ordered my men to stand up and fire back at the enemy, grabbed my weapon, and attempted to stand up despite my injuries. Once I stood up on both my legs to take a peek over the trench, my heart stopped for a split second as I reacted and quickly ducked for cover. The sound of loud whirring engines, while the squeals of tracks filled my ears as the metal hunk drove effortlessly up and above and over the trench. I forgot what happened next. It was all a blur, almost like a passing memory. I woke up in the muddy dirt, my hands cuffed together and my arms behind my back. I looked around to at least gather some context on what's going on, and that's when I get to see it. The tank, an armored power vehicle with offensive weaponry mounted on it. It was an ugly beast, but effective. I soon found out that yes, that is the tank, the same word and the same thing we spoke about in our briefing. It wasn't some container, it wasn't a water tank or a fuel tank, it was a war machine. The tank, heavy duty, apex predator, Head of the pack. End of story. Story number two. The Terror of Gojit, written by SlowAD2584. The infiltrator was in a panic. The humans had discovered it somehow, in the very midst of their town's rural community. It fled to the only place that it could reasonably hide, the vastness of the local IKEA store. It was going to be okay. It was going to be okay. Its technology would overcome these primitives' futile attempts to find it. They only got a good look at it just once. Its cloak feel was holding, and its active counter dampening fields rendering it absolutely silent. It was a silent blur, a scale of fields and blur breaking up a sudden movements into unspecific drifts. The infiltrator's mission was blown, obviously. It was sent to identify vulnerabilities in human physiology and technology, so that these humans would be better known as they entered the galactic hegemony. This was supposed to be a simple, sneak in, observe, take readings, test observed weaknesses to determine actual limits, for more accurate data. It was testing a limitation of the human household security when it was discovered. Most humans in the dead of night had paltry defenses from peering inside to view them, it could literally see into their homes through all of the windows. It was gathering substantial data and was moving to another house when, before it even got close to the property, a horrible baying was heard, howling and barking off the walls so loud it echoed from the neighboring houses. Other howls and yells sounded off in the surrounding households, and the lights began to turn on all around it. How had it gone so bad so quickly? Humans began slamming open the doors to the houses, and several often quite large animals rushed out, sniffing at the air and bounding for the fences in the infiltrator's direction, all straining on their leashes, tugging directly towards it. Flashlights began to play across this cloaking field, and human voices of alarm began to be raised. Apparently, the cloak field itself was detectable under directly lit and observed conditions. 
The infiltrator made a run for it and signaled to orbit for immediate evac. Extraction would take time and the humans and yowling animals were getting closer, closing in. Some of the humans were holding items identified as shotguns. If the infiltrator ever got out of this alive, it would study the rapid response that the human recently sleeping rural community mustered. It was rather impressive. Preliminary checks were made. Was it a military base housing area? By some misfortune? Nope, just a rural neighborhood of regular people in a regular town. The infiltrator had broken into an enormous building marked Ikea as it fled the mob, and found its vast areas of block lines of sight perfect for remaining undetected long enough for the evac ship to get close enough to translocate it out of here. But it had to be close enough to do that. The infiltrator had just had to hide long enough. That was what it was literally born, modified, and trained to do. It began to feel a little hope that this mission wouldn't be a complete disaster. Then it heard it. The large dog haunched on the ground next to the human's leg, having led the human to the broken window. It was sniffing the air, making little urgent motions to run forward. But like an obedient pack predator, it stayed in place. Where is it, boy? Where'd he go? The dog bobbed its head and made an odd hurrah-roar, almost speaking noise, eagerly shivering with excitement as it leaned forward through the broken glass of the window, just waiting for permission. Oh yeah, you got a boy? Yeah, yeah, such a good boy. Everyone stood there for a moment, shifting the shotguns and flashlights in their hands, getting ready at the window and nearby storefronts. The silence hung for a dreadful moment. And the words that would come to bring terror to any infiltrator cadre of the galactic hegemony were heard for the first time. Okay then, go get... And the large dog was a blur of motion, barreling through the store aisles. It seemed to know precisely where the infiltrator was hiding, and the many humans were right behind it. The infiltrator had a last-minute footnote of data, as the translocator beam teleported it up to the evac ship. Apparently... The pet dogs of humanity actually understand human speech and the advanced cognitive meaning, as well as looking and pointing gestures, with all the context, to some very substantial degree. End of story. And that, my friends, is the end of this podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. I hope that you enjoyed. Please check the links down below if you wish to support any of the authors that wrote any of the stories in this episode. There are also links if you wish to support this channel. And I'll see you all in the next episode. And until then, I hope that you have a fantastic one. Cheers.